Hey everybody, this is your Just King Things co-host, Cameron, with a little bit of a treat for you. You'll notice that this is not normally when a new episode of Just King Things drops, and that's because this is a little uh, mid, uh, I I don't know, mid-month treat for people. Um, You see, we would really like it if you would subscribe to the Patreon for $5 a month in order to uh, check out what we're doing over there in the bonusodes. However, if you've never heard a bonusode before, how would you know what a sweet deal it is? Well, here's a little bit of a response or answer or solution to your problem. Uh, so this is the bonus ode that we recorded with a uh, podcaster, game critic, music person, Kirk Hamilton, a little while back, a couple months ago, for the 1994 miniseries The Stand, of course directed by show favorite Mick Garris. Mick Garris, please... Please uh, tweet at me. Please send me a DM. We really want to have you on the show, but I digress. Anyway, so if you're thinking, hey, I'm I'm on the fence about joining the Patreon. I don't really know what's going on in those bonusodes. Do I need to know what their opinions are about these movies and films and things like that? Here's a little sample of the kind of stuff that we do. Um, of course, all the same content warnings for the main show apply here for the um, for the bonusodes here, so just a little bit of warning about that. But here's a very long, very in-depth episode where Michael and I are joined by Kirk Hamilton to talk about 1994's The Stand miniseries. If you enjoy this, go over to patreon.com slash rangetouch in order to see what we're up to, uh, and maybe back us at the $5 uh, level. We're still on the push for 1,025 subscribers. At that point, we will immediately start a podcast on Homestuck, where Michael will guide me through Homestuck. So if any of this sounds interesting to you, if you just somehow missed it, here we are, in the thing, ready to go. I'm going to stop talking now. I'm going to let you get there. Here is the bonus ode in the main feed of 1994's The Stand. Enjoy. And remember, you can get all kinds of stuff like this in the bonus ode feed if you subscribe for $5 a month. Should I say that one more time? I've said it a lot of times. Probably not. Okay, goodbye. Hey everybody, this is Cameron. Before the episode to say that the content warnings for this episode are posted down in the description below. Uh, We started doing that for both these bonus episodes and for the uh, uh, mainline episodes, I guess. I don't know what the word is for that. Uh, Thanks so much for listening and supporting us on Patreon. And uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Just King Things bonus ode um, for Stephen King's. Uh, Stephen King's. I had to do the appropriate voice. The Stand. <laughs> uh, for uh, It's the miniseries, the 1994 miniseries. Uh, I'm Cameron, and uh, with me, as always, is Michael. Hi. And joining us, our first Just King Things guest is a, a musician, podcast extraordinaire, Kirk Hamilton. Hey, what's up? I'm so I'm so psyched that I'm your first guest, and I'm very excited to be here to talk about this. No, Kirk, I, I guess we can just open it up this way. You told me, this is a few weeks ago now, but you told me that you are, quote, a huge The Stand fan. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, I read this book, boy, when I was probably like 15 or something. I remember that mm. the copy of the book that I had had this cover with us doing Franny like from the miniseries because oh. the miniseries had come out. Oh. So I think I maybe saw a scene. I think it was actually the scene where Harold crashes his motorcycle and dies because my parents were watching it. But then I read the book and it 
I think I'd read King before this. Like I'd read maybe uh, The Eyes of the Dragon and an, a bit of The Shining. So I, I thought of him as a scary guy, but The Eyes of the Dragon is like not actually a horror book. So I already thought of him as this sort of mixed storyteller. But yeah, I read the book and was just so, so into it. Um, you know, of course, until it completely falls apart. But but I was really into the first half of it and uh, and really liked it. And I haven't, I should say for listeners that I haven't heard um, the two of your episode about the book, though I've looked at your notes a little bit. So I might be asking you to to recap or, or to, to sum up some of your thoughts on the book at various points here, because I'll certainly be talking about my own take. But yes, I'm a big fan of this book and a, a, kind of a fan of this miniseries too, actually. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think that's a, that, that's a big thing here um, because miniseries is pretty good. It is. It's, yeah. It is, right? It's a lot less uh, boring than the last miniseries we watched, which was The Shining, which came after yeah. came three years after this and was half the length and maybe a fourth of the actual content. Man, I watched that. I used to hate The Shining. This is it's funny that this is going to be like all of the Stephen King thoughts that I've had as I listened to your wonderful podcast that I've like wanted to to share with you. This is like the dream of every podcast listener is getting to come on and then um, just sort of spew all of their reactions from. So I'll, I'll try to keep that to a minimum. But yeah, like I hated when I was a kid, I hated the uh, Kubrick Shining. And then I remember watching that miniseries and thinking, okay, King's going to get it right. And then being like, that was kind of bad and unsatisfying. <laughs> and um, this kind of has a similar energy to that Shining miniseries. This was obviously before it, but it does feel very King authored. But in a good way, for the most part, I found anyways. Yeah, I, I found it, especially on the rewatch, surprisingly good and watchable. Yeah, I mean, uh, same production team for the most part, right? So mm -hmm. it's the same. Um, uh, Mick Garris directs, so the same director as the Shining mm -hmm. miniseries. Stephen King, of course, is doing his own adaptation. So he's writing the thing. And for the most part, so it, to, to maybe reveal, so for these uh, bonus episodes, Michael does a little bit of like extra research in a general sense about the production. And I watch the, the commentaries. Oh, <laughs> and okay. so there's a lot of, there, or listen to the commentaries, I should say. Uh, so there's a lot of additional information. So, of course, Mick Harris directed Stephen King writes his own thing. And, but then the editor is also the same. Um, mm. The first project, I'm blanking on this guy's name. I had it written down here. It does not matter. I can find it out later. <laughs> uh, oh, Pat McMahon. Um, so Pat McMahon had never worked with Mick Garris before. And then they worked on this. And I think McMahon has now edited everything that Mick Garris has done since this time, except for one project. So... They really hit it off on this. And and so I think that the kind of similar vibe there is because literally all of the kind of pieces that you can see, right, have the same thumbprint on them or the same set of thumbprints. Did WG, um, good old WG Snuffy Walden, do the music for the Shining miniseries? Because I feel like the music is a really defining for good and for ill part of this uh, miniseries. I do not believe so. I really wanted to ask you about that. Um, oh, yeah, we'll get but, into it because I feel like you are going to have musical opinions that that I won't. But I do have some quotes from both Mick Garris and Steve about the musical talent <laughs> designed uh, for this. But so but, so maybe um, you know, kind of getting into it. Um, maybe we can ask some general production questions. Michael, did you learn anything super interesting in your additional research? Um, I imagine a lot of the really interesting stuff that I learned probably would have come up on the commentary track in some form. Uh, a lot of what I learned, so I read, 
a couple of interviews that I found and I read, um, there's a book called This Dark Chest of Wonders, 40 Years mm. of Stephen King's The Stand, which was put out by Cemetery Dance Press like two years ago. Uh, Cemetery Dance is like a, a sort of like a boutique small press for horror imprints and they have a relationship the, the the editor has a relationship with Stephen King and they put out a lot of special editions of his books uh and there was this retrospective book um that is entirely about the stand both as a book as the miniseries and then also the audiobook uh there's interviews with uh various people um the people who get interviewed about the miniseries in this book are Mick Garris himself uh Jamie Sheridan who plays Randall Flagg and mm -hmm. uh WG Snuffy Walden as a matter of fact. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking those are the those are the three main interviews for that point. And then there's also kind of a little historiography of how the, the miniseries came to be. Uh, so just the general production history. Uh, the Stand, as a book, happens. It's well-received. Stephen King is pretty good friends, or he becomes pretty good friends with George Romero of uh, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead fame. The... the the thing that ends up happening with uh, King and Romero is Creepshow, uh, the sort of EC Comics uh, mm -hmm. tribute anthology series. Uh, but they had various other projects. George Romero is one of those people, if you ever look into like his history, right? He was always attached to like 16 projects simultaneously and none of them ever happened. A couple of mm -hmm. them were Stephen King adaptations. One of them was an adaptation of The Stand. Uh, and this talks about this start in the early 80s uh, and that it just mm. never materializes because people don't really know how to make a movie <laughs> out of this book. This type of story uh, without really compromising it in a way that, you know, puts one of the parties out. So that's kind of dies down. Uh, there's a more talk later on in the 80s. There's like another uh, screenplay that gets uh, written and circulated. Uh, but then eventually... In 1990, I want to say, ABC airs a miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's It, which is uh, very famous. It's the one with uh, Tim Curry as Pennywise, and and it, it does gangbusters, apparently, in terms of ratings. People really like that miniseries, and ABC is like, okay, let's, you know, it, it, it opens up the, the sort of execs' minds to doing something even bigger. Because uh, they, they love the ratings, and they want something that's going to be more than two nights, which is what it was. And this is when Stephen King is kind of like, hey, maybe we could do The Stand. And he brings in McGarris, who he has met... Uh, I think in 1992, because uh, Garris made Sleepwalkers, which is Stephen King's uh, first original screenplay, uh, wasn't based on anything uh, before. Uh, have you seen Sleepwalkers, either of you? Nope. No. Cameron, we are going to watch Sleepwalkers. Nice. Yes. Oh, we, we have to. We have to. <laughs> we <laughs> it is the weirdest weirdest damn thing but anyway mick garris kind of uh does this in a way that stephen king likes uh and so uh when talks get started for doing the stand miniseries uh that's when mick garris gets brought in and and that's sort of just the, the genesis of this project as a tv miniseries got hmm. it it has yeah. to have been super ambitious i mean even watching it now the amount of sets and actors and moving pieces. I mean, they must have just, it must have been a colossal undertaking to make this. 
Yeah. They, so Garrus talks a little bit about that in the in the commentary. What's really interesting to me is they had a 100 day shooting schedule and they had a budget of, I think, I think uh, Garrus says six million dollars per episode, hmm. which sounds like a lot of money, but really is not a lot of money. Six million dollars mm-hmm. to functionally make a movie. Um, you know, it, it, he even knows the exact amount of time. It's like. Uh, gosh, I wish I'd written it down, but it's a very specific down to the seconds amount of time you have to fill up to then get to two hours with commercials. Mm. And so it's a very particular thing. So it costs, I guess, a lot of money and and kind of the abstract for thinking about it. But Garrus is pretty hardline that, you know, they really had to make the money count. And so they had a 100 day shooting schedule. They started in the winter in Utah. And their idea was that they would start in the winter and shoot a bunch of stuff on a soundstage. Uh, let me tell you, the soundstage uh, was, uh, that's the scenes that are in the uh, CDC in Vermont, and then they mm-hmm. shot all those, and then they tear that down, and then it turns into the cornfield. So all oh. of Mother Abigail's cornfield scenes are all shot on a sound, soundstage. That looks like a soundstage. That does not look like they went to a cornfield <laughs> <laughs> to shoot that. just the lighting. It is like the fakest looking cornfield. Yeah, it looks like a stage. <laughs> In a way that I actually kind of find endearing, but it uh, definitely does not look like they, you know, actually went out to a cornfield in Nebraska. Well, they tried so hard, uh, apparently. Mm-hmm. They got rotted corn. This is something that I found very interesting listening to, to uh, you know, various things and, and, you know, researching the production of film. Anytime that you are working with corn, it's difficult. <laughs> oh, that uh, makes sense, I guess. As someone from Indiana, I already knew this. <laughs> oh nice i'm also from indiana and uh yes though they say there's more than corn in indiana there is also a lot of corn in indiana so well, apparently there's stephen it. king also <laughs> stephen king fans also are in indiana yeah um but uh yeah the production of field of dreams they had to like do all kinds of weird stuff to make the corn grow and then the corn grew too big so every time you mm. see someone in the film standing in a field of corn in field uh-huh. of dreams they're standing on like a four foot tall apple box apparently oh, that's so funny <laughs> yeah. uh so corn corn's fascinating to me in film but um so so the plan was to do all of the basically interiors in the film in utah on a soundstage on various different uh, interiors there and then do uh, external kind of spring scenes or, or end of summer scenes um as the weather got better and it just never got better Basically, um, uh, the weather in Utah went from from winter. It was the worst winter in Utah in the in the last hundred years. (laughs) And then it went directly into like April rain. And so they got, I I think, one week of good weather they shot around and then they shot um, in other locations uh, in the U.S. So they go to Vegas. So the Vegas scenes are actually shot in Vegas. I was wondering about that. Yeah. Yeah. which, which I think really works. And I didn't think that looked like Vegas, but it's the, you know, the 1950s strip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Pittsburgh is where a lot of the New York stuff is shot. Um, and they actually went to Ogunquit, Maine. Oh, really? Yeah, I was wondering about those scenes. Those scenes do look like they went to a different location, like all the Franny stuff from the beginning. Well, so that's the wild thing is a lot of those are in Utah. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, funny. <laughs> it's just the, so that was like their one week of nice weather. <laughs> so they, yeah, they, yes, they shot basically, those and it's a lot of like the small town stuff that's in Ogunquit. Okay. Um, yeah, so like it, where they meet, uh, where like Tom Cullen shows up, and all of those right, scenes right. are um, in Ogunquit. So yeah, but but this whole thing was shot on a one hundred day shoot, which was like a grueling nightmare mick garris i think you got more information about this michael but mick garris basically had to work six days a week for four months 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In the interview uh, that I read with Garrus, he talks about the, the shooting schedule uh, was bifurcated. Uh, the It was like 20 weeks or something. And the first half was five days a week. And the second half was six days a week. And they were 12 hour days. And he talks about how, um, you know, in, in because of union stuff and guild stuff, uh, they had to be very careful about those 12 hours because they didn't want to go into overtime. But also the way that uh, film schedule or like filming schedules staggered, he said that they would end up in these situations where, you know, like little delays throughout the day would kind of mean actually your 12 hours instead of being from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., which is what it's supposed to be, would end up uh, like taking you into like 2 or 3 a.m. You would sleep for a few hours and then like have to start again at 7 a.m. And it sounded just absolutely awful. Yeah, Um it, but apparently they literally hit. So they they set out initially 100 day shoot schedule and they ended on the 100 day shoot schedule. So so they hit their target. Um, other interesting things just about the production in general. So um, Garris had this idea to begin with that he always wanted the camera to be moving, which is difficult in the film, right? Especially for TV because making a camera move is expensive, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, they actually shot the whole schedule with a steady cam operator and with a crane. And so mm. that's why there's so many different shot styles in the, in the film or in mm. the in the miniseries as opposed to most other TV that you could watch. And I watched the beginning of the Tommy Knockers miniseries. I want to say when we started this podcast, just checking out what it looked like, and you can feel the difference between the Mick Garris production and the other Stephen King adaptations. <laughs> but uh, so so they had a lot of ability to make the camera do stuff that you know dolly track or just a, a you know a still setup wouldn't allow. Um, and uh, the whole thing, due to budget reasons, was shot on 16 millimeters. So it, it, it you know, literally is lower def, more grainy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they had to kind of shoot around that. And Garris talks about purposely not doing the things that horror films do and not doing things that early or that like TV miniseries normally do with putting a lot of uh, smoke on screen or things like that to, to hide set pieces because he wanted everything to look really sharp as if it were a film you were watching. Um, and I think that's really successful. It, it, I really like listening to Mick Garris talk about his his craft and and about these uh, miniseries that he makes because there's a lot of aesthetic thought that goes into it that you just don't really hear about most of the time in Stephen King adaptations. <laughs> yeah, it comes across right in like in the on the on the screen the way that it looks old fashioned, but not in a way that a lot of things from this time period look, I guess that must be related to to the fact that it was shot on 16 millimeter. Like it, it doesn't look sharp. I watched this, I should say, I watched this whole thing on YouTube because it's just on YouTube right now. <laughs> and that was, that's one way to watch it. So it could be that the transfer to YouTube wasn't that great, but it's, it's noticeable. It, it, it has a nice look to it. It holds up, especially the first, maybe the first segment, like the first couple of hours. Mm-hmm. The, I had to, because I was committed to listening to this commentary. Mm-hmm. I own this on DVD already. I bought nice. it when we began looking at what we were going to watch over the next year or so. And then I realized, oh, there's a commentary, but it's not on this DVD. So I'm going to have to buy the Blu-ray. And <laughs> I will say that the Blu-ray for this looks great. Like, it's hmm. a great Blu-ray transfer. You know, it, 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 uh, you know, it's not the worst $10 I've ever spent, for sure. Um, uh I guess the other thing that I have to say here, too, is about casting. And, Michael, you actually have much better information on casting here. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but uh, Mick Garris says, and this is a quote, the networks are normally star fuckers. <laughs> 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 and so he says that Gary, they didn't want to get Gary Sinise. They did not because Gary Sinise was not a well-known right. um, kind of name at this point. And mm-hmm. um, they were sold on Gary Sinise because of his performance in the Of Mice and Men adaptation that he directed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so they brought him in for that. McGarris brought him in for that. And uh, they kind of maneuvered with the network. I mean, this is not the shining levels of Stephen King power or Stephen King's the shining levels of Stephen King power where Stephen King appeared to have. We talked about this in the episode, but Stephen King for that apparently just made you know universal decisions about who got cast as what. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't the case necessarily here. Um, uh, but it seems like Stephen King did get to push quite a bit. And so Gary Sinise seems to be the product of that. But Michael, you were telling me about some like weirder and more different casting choices. Right. So, uh, our, our three principal like male leads have a very interesting story in how they get cast. So Rob Lowe is in this film. Uh, he sure is. Yeah. (laughs) He's wonderful (laughs) in this movie too. He's such a good Nick. I think he's great. Uh, yeah, he's Nick Andros. Uh, Now, what's sort of interesting about how he gets cast is that uh, this is just after uh, his like sex tape scandal, like not too long after that anyway. And, you know, he has this reputation of being kind of well, at this time, he would have had a reputation of being a bad boy. Um, How we would talk about him today is that he's kind of a piece of shit. Um, (laughs) Not a good guy, Rob Lowe. But he. uh was kind of in this in this weird like rough patch uh in terms of like his his media image and persona and he is i don't know if he's like personally interested or if like his agent is interested in having him play larry underwood because that is a very Mm. rob lowe kind of character especially for this point in his career uh and that is so that is happening uh and as Mick Garris, who is sort of thinking over this, and this is in his interview, he's he's talking about how, well, you know, what if we what if we, you know, cast you against type? Like, what if we made you like the the really sort of like quiet, unassuming guy uh, instead of sort of the, the sort of slimier, seedier guy? And what if we made you Nick Andros? Um, and, you know, what what could what interesting friction could we get out of that? And it turns out that Rob Lowe is really into that idea. Right. And it, it uh, is a counterpoint to the media coverage of him. Mm-hmm. So that has happened. Meanwhile, Gary Sinise's people are actually in touch with the production because they want Gary for Nick Andros. Oh, huh. Mm hmm. Uh, Mick Garris, you know, is uh, impressed by Of Mice and Men, and he thinks like, oh, this guy could be our Stu Redmond. Um, so <laughs> that that actually ends up working out. Uh, and then Larry. Larry is a guy named, I think, Adam Stork. Is that the actor's yeah. name? Yes. OK, so uh, let's lay this out. Um, Rob Lowe is interested in Larry but he ends up getting cast as Nick. Gary Sinise is interested in Nick, but ends up getting cast as Stu. So who actually becomes Larry? Why, Adam Stork, the son of the head of the network. Oh, okay. He's definitely the guy who is the biggest question mark to me. That is so funny that nobody wanted the roles they had, especially because um, 
I think Gary Sinise is just fantastically cast as Stu Redman. I mean, maybe it's just because I've always pictured Stu that way because, like I said, even the version of the book that I read had Gary Sinise's face on the cover. But um, <laughs> but he's he's such a, like, clinched working class guy. Like, that's so – he hits that frequency so effortlessly, and that's so Stu that, I don't know, he's he's so well cast that it's funny to imagine him playing – uh, to playing Nick, a very, very different character. Yeah, you could tell that, I mean, I guess the the thing, the difference is that Gary Sinise is interested in acting, you yeah, know? He's, like, he's interested mm, in a hard role to go for. Right, sure. And I don't I don't know if Stu Redman in his heart is a hard role to play. Right, it's Although actually it very easy job. for him, which is why he's such good casting, but that is true. If you wanted a challenge, that's maybe the least challenging role. Um, my wife and I were both of agreement that Gary Sinise is n- no no shade on Gary Sinise personally, but like not hot enough to be Stu Redman. <laughs> oh, Stu needs to be hotter. Interesting. Like we we were both of the opinion that like for Franny to be as interested in Stu as she ends up being like because Stu just doesn't have a lot else going on for he him. He just needs he's, to be a total smoke show. <laughs> yeah, like he he's got to be he's got to be hotter. Like he's got to have mm. like some real handsomeness uh vibes which uh, again nothing against gary sinise but he is uh not sort of that traditional hollywood look no he's like a rel- he's more like a reliable guy in a world with not many reliable people so you can see how someone could be attracted to somebody like that in this setting yes but, um, but no he's not he's not a slab of beefcake he um uh, my, my wife and i my wife also watched this with me or at least a good good half of it before she did not was not interested in she watched the good she watched the, the first half which is when most people then get up to go do something else <laughs> um but uh she or, or we were both talking about it and uh gary sinise has what a, a couple years we would call a dad bod in this in the show mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they give him a really tight t-shirt but the only thing it does is kind of accentuate his gut a little bit mm-hmm. uh it's a real salt of the earth kind of look he molly ringwald in this like I guess part of the reason that I don't think of him as a sex object in this is because her take on Franny is very odd. I think it's like I think it's like one of the weirder performances in this miniseries and their <laughs> chemistry, their whole relationship like just doesn't really make sense to me on screen. It does make sense in the book or at least from what I remember of it. I reread the book maybe 3 years ago or something like that and I I feel like their relationship at least comes across in the book even though it's not the most compelling relationship in the book but in the miniseries I was really struck by how just how odd her performance is it just seems like I'm not sure what it what exactly it was I guess I'm curious what the two of you make of Molly Ringwald in this and then their scenes together I was always just like all right whatever (laughs) like let's let's keep going let's let's see something else here well I, I mean I think uh one thing to maybe set set a tone here is I think you know when we when we talked about the the book right mm-hmm. um, one thing and something that's come up repeatedly and when we were talking about especially these early Stephen King books is that they there's not a lot of inter- interiority of women you know no. Steve's just not particularly great at that and I would say also unfortunately Mick Garris is also not particularly good at that and mm-hmm. so the uh, what is motivating women in the world of the stand, both in bo- novel and in uh, visual form, is is kind of a big question mark, I think, a lot of the time. Um, yeah, I but. was wondering about that with – I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this in this where I'm watching it thinking, okay, this character is being ill-served by the fact that even at its epic length, this is a very compressed version of the book. Like Trash Can Man, for example. If you haven't read the book, 
and you see it's like but whatever we can get into that but in terms of the female characters it's certainly true like nadine and franny especially nadine has this like a very complicated inner story that i have to assume is at least somewhat better explored in the book even though it sounds like you're saying that it isn't really but in the in the miniseries it's very she's just a total cipher to me and um franny feels kind of the same like even her introductory scenes am i remember i'm remembering correctly right that in the book franny you know franny is pregnant from the very beginning and mm-hmm. that's kind of a lot of her internal monologue of her chapters is her thinking about this child that she has and or is going to have and like what the world is going to be like and worrying about that where in the miniseries it's like a big reveal way down the road so you <laughs> kind of just don't even know much about her other than like her dad seems like a nice guy and he dies and that she's like stuck with like, you know, perpetual friend zone, the worst guy ever, Harold. And that's essentially her whole character. Yeah. So uh, uh, when we when we release our full episode on the book, uh, we'll get more backstory here. Uh, but back in my days of the early 2000s Internet Stephen King fandom, Molly Ringwald was a topic of perpetual ire in in our listserv oh, hmm. i can imagine like this was a thing like uh and and she shows up uh even like unfortunately she's not interviewed i would love to have heard uh sort of some of her experiences working on this project uh but it comes up in in you know the dark chest of wonders or whatever uh like in multiple interviews people are like people didn't really like the, the molly ringwald stuff uh but no one ever really digs down into that. And I, I agree with you, Kirk, that I think this adaptation, uh, you know, I mean, it has to, by virtue of what it is, it has to make certain decisions. Uh, but again, even my, this is a conversation my wife and I were having as we were watching it, like the, the, the major women characters in this uh, book, like are compressed much more than the male characters. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Nadine gets conflated mm-hmm. with an entirely different character, and uh, and and Fran has that just to jump right in uh, has that really weird scene where uh, they first meet up with Stu and there this is when you know it's post apocalypse they're riding motorcycles around through the wreckage of society and she's wearing like this trendy little hat in like tights yeah. and <laughs> um and and it's just like you know the the there there did not seem to be a lot of thought put into like what is a woman actually going to wear in this situation? It was more like, we're designing a cute costume for an actress. Wasn't it, didn't that strike you also? I totally, that scene is stuck in my mind, partly because Harold's outfit in that scene has oh, had so much thought put into it. The leather jacket that he wears in this miniseries is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life. I hate it so much. It like <laughs> evokes this like visceral, just, oh my God, that's the worst thing I've ever seen, which is, I think on purpose, even at the time, it's supposed to imply that he's this tryhard wannabe tough guy. And so his costume, like, is telling this whole, you know, like, Homer-esque narrative, (laughs) like, from the start of the scene. And right, and she's just wearing this exceedingly sort of casual outfit, which, if anything, only exists to be a contrast to him and make her seem like, look, I'm normal. This guy's weird, but we're rolling together because it's safe. And, like, it doesn't actually make any sense in terms of, like, what she would actually be wearing under under the circumstances. I, I don't quite understand. The thing I like about Harold's outfit there, I mean, I, I also... In addition to reaction, everything? <laughs> well, I mean, but he's also wearing snakeskin boots, uh-huh. yeah. which is like, just amazing to me. Um, 
Yeah, Molly Ringwald is dressed like a Molly Ringwald character, right? She's mm-hmm, getting sure. typecast in her costuming, um, which I think means that there's a ceiling to where we can imagine, uh, you know, Fran kind of going, um, which is unfortunate, uh, you know, and I mm-hmm. really do think that's a production design and directing problem of, of thinking really deeply about the transformations of these characters. But to be frank, right, I mean, the, listening to the commentary really uh, pushes some of that too. Um, of the people who speak in the commentary, there is one woman, and it's Ruby D, and and Ruby D is uh, the actress who plays Mother Abigail, and Mick Garris is kind of guiding her through it, but she is telling long anecdotal stories that have n- very little to do with the production a lot of the time. But we don't get any of these other kind of women's voices, you know, after the fact, which is unfortunate. But the interesting thing that w- that uh, that happens here right is that Stephen King says two things about these characters uh, about Fran and Harold the first thing he says or, or one thing he says is about Fran and it, and it is he says she is the only character that he could see himself falling in love with in the stand <laughs> uh-huh. so that, that the insertiness right here right is yeah. pretty extreme um, the other thing, and this is a, a thing to really blow your mind, right? So, so Harold in the novel, right, is kind of written as this big nerd character. You know, he's fat, and there's all this fat phobia stuff that we talked about. Um, uh, yeah, I was and, remembering that that there's a whole narrative where he loses weight, right, and gets in exactly. shape, and then yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, and they couldn't do that for production reasons. They just so they just gave him show. big zits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what that McGarry says. Uh, basically, he's like, "Well, we couldn't figure it out, so we just gave him zits." They patted mm-hmm. his butt, apparently. Oh, they really? Made his butt bigger <laughs> it did in not the come across. I, I yeah, I didn't notice that either. But, <laughs> but they say that that's part of it. <laughs> At least they didn't put him in a fat suit. I guess Harold Lobster's exactly. huge false ass. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but but the other thing that Stephen King says about Harold, and I think this demonstrates some of the different kinds of thinking going into these characters. In because remember, Stephen King's writing the screenplay too, so he's doing his own adaptation, and he's writing a lot of this into the screenplay. Um, Harold is Stephen King in high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is explicitly a self-insert, um, especially his literary pretensions. In the uh, in the miniseries, the first scene we see Harold in, he shows up and is showing off a, a poem that he has published in like a small literary magazine. He's trying to show it to Fran, and it's obviously, I think, about her. And mm-hmm. you know, he's trying to be like, "Look, I'm important." That is actually the poem that's in that that magazine is Stephen King's first published piece of writing. Oh man! Oh okay. my god! That that totally tracks too. Well, and that that tracks with his whole thing of sort of. Uh, self-referencing himself and sort of hating some of the people he used to be while also having these kind of salt of the earth guys like Stu that he really admires and thinks of as sort of purely good like that that all is very Stephen Kingy that that makes total sense oh you're uh, I have so many more self uh, Stephen King's life self inserts in for this miniseries to give you I'm gonna I'm just gonna tease that right now but I've got two other I think bombshell Yep, revelations. Well, so let's say one more thing or, or kind of talk about one more big production thing, and we can kind of just talk about similarities and differences. I think this is a um, pretty faithful miniseries, and so we can just kind of talk about whatever we liked and what we didn't like. I, you know, I don't think we need to have too much of a structure for it um, just because it is so similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Kirk, I would love to hear you talk about the music of Snuffy Walden <laughs> <laughs> because uh, Stephen King... Uh, for this miniseries, he chose Snuffy Walden. Mm-hmm. That tracks. He, that makes sense. He, he went out and got him. He pushed for it really hard. He had to work. He pushed the network. He pushed McGarris, and it's because he wanted quote 
blue jeans music to be the mm-hmm. score. That's mm-hmm. what he calls this genre, blue jeans music. Um, yeah. I, so this music, I at first didn't realize who it was. And WG Snuffy Walden just has an amazing name. And I remember noticing, I think it was watching The West Wing back when I watched The West Wing, because um, that's what I always think of him as, is the composer of the music and the main title theme for The West Wing. Though he, of course, did a lot of, he did Sports Night. He did uh, some other Sorkin stuff, I think, a lot of TV stuff in the 90s and early 2000s. And is a guitarist, and that's his main instrument, which you can certainly tell from this miniseries because (laughs) almost the entire thing is just guitar music Mm -hmm. and man i my take on this music is it's really good at one thing but it is not (laughs) flexible enough Uh, his approach is very baffling to me over the course of the entire miniseries um i think it's you know it's a lot of this like slide acoustic guitar stuff this like loose blues just you know the, the stuff that plays over the beginning and you wouldn't need to accompany these scenes with that kind of music but it works because it's a lot of dusty death and sort of like it's got that kind of country you know vibe like dust bowl blues which is another way of saying i think when stephen king says blue jeans music that's kind of what he's talking about like working class acoustic guitar stuff that you'd play on the porch while you're drinking you know moonshine or whatever and that works, I think, for the scenes of, you know, sort of squalor and desperation. And it works, you know, it really fits the sort of opening scenes of this miniseries. And then I think they use the licensed music super well. Like, I think that the uh, the needle drop of Don't Fear the Reaper, where I think they play that song in its entirety over that mm-hmm. opening. Like, that is a gangbusters opening sequence. But that's not Snuffy Weldon's music, right? Like, that's, that's using Blue Oyster Cult really well. So... That stuff is good. And then there just comes this point where that's the only music there is. And there isn't like he doesn't hit any other moods, even though the miniseries travels through a whole bunch of different moods and it stops really feeling as appropriate. Like there are just so many times where it's still that like music and you're like, OK, but what the, the scene is not actually like set in the desert on an empty highway. <laughs> so this music doesn't fit. And then he he is a fairly um, treacly composer when it comes to writing uplifting or happier music. And I say that with love. Like, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for the West Wing theme. There are so – his other, like, the kind of triumph theme that he wrote for this very much sounds like the West Wing. And it's right around when he would have written the West Wing theme. So it's like he was very in that vibe. And there's just these two modes. It either is – that sort of just guitar, dusty, you know, side of the road thing, or this really pretty cheesy, you know, we're all coming together and it's all fine music. And then there just isn't anything else. Like there is the kind of funkier, more electronic rock stuff when something bad is happening or when Flag is doing something, but that stuff just sounds very corny. And I think about like the work that Thomas Newman did uh, on Shawshank Redemption or Down the Road, and then Thomas Newman more broadly as a composer. And I would have loved to see a version of this that Thomas Newman scored. That's not to like throw shade at Snuffy Walden. It's just to say that I think a more like texturally interesting and versatile composer could have done something really cool with this exact same miniseries, just writing different music for it. And I was really into the music at first, and then as it went, it just really started to drag on me. And by the end, I was like, man, I can't believe there were really only two musical modes for this whole miniseries. Like, I kind of just wanted more variety. So I have some stuff to add there. Okay. Yeah, please do. 
Yeah, so uh, the interview that I read with with Walden um, illuminates a couple of very interesting points. Uh, one is that Walden is a huge Stephen King fan. Hmm. I can um, see that. Yeah. And so uh, he talks about, like, reading The Stand in the early 80s uh, uh, and how big of an impact it had on me. Or had on me is what he says, right? But, um, mm-hmm. uh, and he goes through kind of, like, so he, I don't know exactly by what uh, sort of circumstance it's Stephen King who's pulling Walden in specifically, but Walden, to hear him tell it, is just totally overjoyed. He is overwhelmed at this opportunity, and he is so happy to do it, and his entire sort of vision for this uh, musically is that we will start in one world and end in another. Uh, And that's Mm. why we go from bluesy guitar to, like, uh, electric guitar, Right. And that's 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 the transition. Uh, and it's it's very it's very interesting to hear you talk about uh, talk about it in the terms that you just did. Whereas in, in Walden's interview, it seems like he, he thinks that he succeeded uh, and he really loved the project. Anyway, another interesting fact is that they ran out of money to pay him uh, like the production did. And he like let them know he was like, I, you know, I can't finish the the last bit of music I have to do for this. He also talks about the actual process of recording, which uh, like he was uh, basically using both rooms of like his his studio or whatever. Like he was uh, like writing in one room and recording in the other, like simultaneously Mm -hmm. going back and forth because it was on such a tight turnaround. Uh, But they ran out of money. Stephen King wrote him a personal check for $10,000 so he could mm, finish, finish the it. score. It feels like there's some recycled stuff toward the end. There are just a couple of scenes where I was like, I've, I've already heard this music. <laughs> this, is, this is being played again here. Um, yeah, it's hard to say that it doesn't work though, right? Because it does, or it's so integral to the identity of this miniseries. I don't think I would change it. I would love to hear that other version, but it's just such, it's, it's like all of it, like the bad CGI, or if it is even CGI, like the bad visual effects. <laughs> there are just so many things about this that I just are just, you can't remove them from it. It is what it is, and the music is very much that way, and it, it does work, and I like a lot of it, and I do like his work. It's just, it does, it feels limited or something, or incomplete, maybe, by the end, when I look at it in its totality. So that's interesting to hear. Uh, Mick Garris is also disappointed in the visual effects. Like every, yeah, anytime surprised. in both of these commentaries that I've listened to with Mick Garris, anytime there's a digital effect that does not have a uh, practical component, he's like, I hate this shot. I hate mm-hmm. this effect shot. I was disappointed in it. Like the, you know, the orb at the end with the hand of God, he's oh, like, God. I hate this. This is yeah. terrible. The best, <laughs> like, the best thing is, is at the very the end, time. the floating mother Abigail head oh, at the very God. end is just, outrageously great like i mean by by great i mean bad (laughs) like i was like considering how it starts i really like this i think this miniseries starts so strong in fact like rewatching it at the beginning i was like this rips is this just going to be amazing from start to finish that because it's all practical it's all sets there's that really long that blue oyster cult sequence is so cool it is so good it's so good. I was like, this is next level. Like, this is on a level of something I would watch now and just really think was great. And then it just gradually deteriorates. And then soon you get the first effect shots and you're like, oh, okay, this is from 1994. And then the fact that the final scene is like a floating mother Abigail head being like 
sort of you know fading in over a baby <laughs> and i was like wow we have come a long way like we've really fallen from that that boc intro well it reminds me of like night of the hunter or whatever where uh you like it from the 40s and 50s where you get these really weird uh shots where you would have like a superimposed like person narrating yep. over a scene and it's yeah so yeah yeah like the floating cowboy heads in the meme you know it kind of has yeah. that, that energy it feels almost ironic even though it was not i meant ironically in 1994 um the the only other thing i'll add about music uh, i'm sure it'll come up again but the thing yeah. i want to say is that all those kind of uh pop music moments uh, that mm -hmm. show up in it uh those were all written in the script by stephen king mm -hmm. i'm so surprised to hear that no i'm not hey I, you know i have a question wait who wrote baby can you dig your man like who wrote the music for that because I, um, I couldn't find it uh, uh I, I i do have it uh oh nice but you you might have it too uh michael i I, that's I might good, let's find out let's do it's duel. pretty good i gotta say like i've i had a whole version of that that i would hear in my head when i read the book and it was a lot more kind of soul you know since they talk a lot about how he's going for that soul sound and um it's much more of an 80s pop like rocker in this uh in the miniseries but I, it's pretty good it's like it's it's like a pretty fun little cover it kind of gets stuck in my head when i was watching yeah the music don't... was done by uh i think what's his name his i think larry cooper Okay. Uh, Cooper with a K. He's done other things, and I actually—it's one of those things. I looked him up last night, and I was like, "Oh, that's a guy who did some stuff." Um, but now I can't remember what were the other things he did were. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote it down, uh, and uh, I can't read my own handwriting. Uh, but it was right before they talk about Snuffy Walden. So yeah, I trust you, Michael. Um, yeah, Stephen King wrote the full lyrics for the song and then uh, worked with uh, maybe this Larry Cooper person. Uh, oh, 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 it's, it's uh, sorry, it's it's uh, Al Cooper. Yeah, I'm looking up Al Cooper. I was wondering, so that's like the Blood, Sweat, and Tears guy. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense because that band rules and he's a good musician, so that's why it would be an actual good song. Yeah, he is uh, the musical director for the Rock Bottom Remainders, which is the rock band that <laughs> Stephen King is in with uh like amy tan and matt yep. raining she like plays keyboard right it's yeah it's a bunch of authors i love that yeah. that band exists <laughs> so kirk you can come back when in five years we read the autobiography of the of stephen king's band which he contributed writing to right is it funny knowing that you guys are going to be making like episodes of this show like you can literally time it out and be like we're going to make this episode in, in six years <laughs> if we're still doing this well funny is a word this. for it yeah sure yeah. <laughs> overwhelming <laughs> no michael has a full schedule like in the spreadsheet and it, it so we know that like in march of 2024 we'll be recording whatever right right that's kind of nice it's like optimistic in a way we'll all still be here from we can still listen to episodes of just king thing um well can we i you know i guess uh since we're talking about uh baby can you dig your man yeah. i should start talking about this thing uh yeah. number one with a bullet larry's my favorite character he's the best character in the book too when i reread it i remember i actually had forgotten that he was good i had him mixed up with harold in my mind because i hadn't mm. read the book since i was like 15 and then I reread it a couple of years ago and I was like, oh, does this guy like he gets like seduced by Nadine and becomes evil? And I totally forgot that his he has the opposite arc and he becomes <laughs> like a much better person over the course of the, like he has an actual arc. Like he grows and becomes better and then like sacrifices himself in a dumb ending. But like whatever, you know, he like still grows and becomes a better person. And he's good. And he's good in a, in the miniseries, too. He kind of it's like a more like narrow band performance i guess but but he's still a good character 
He does a lot of, uh, there's a lot of like New New York, ma, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just falls out halfway through. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. He, he makes more sense it. as a character for like the first part. But I mean, this whole thing just falls out in the second half, right? Like, I mean, it's it's everything that makes sense makes sense for the first three hours or so. Yeah, no, Larry Michael. is, uh, I feel like it's weird because, so he's the son of the head of the network, um, which you think would be uh, a bad sign, but actually I think he's kind of like the best fit for how I envision the characters when I read versus like how mm. they came out on screen. Uh, like there's something, uh, I mean, he's like, a, he's very much like a, a guy who shows up for an episode of Law and Order. <laughs> Which yes. I feel like is exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what character type Larry Underwood is, right? He's someone, he's someone who shows up for one episode of Law and & Order and then, like, disappears after that forever. But here we got an entire, like, epic built around him. Right. And that that is what rules about the character, that he is not um, a huge star or, like, a great success. He's a guy who wrote one good song and it's doing okay on the charts and he's pretty convinced that he's going to be like a big star but he's not and that's actually like a really interesting place to start with a character that's what i've always liked about him is he, he's like i don't want to just be a one-hit wonder and i don't even know that it's that big of a hit but it's doing okay and like maybe i can see this through and of course he's on he's on track to totally ruin his own life he's like in debt and just sort of being an idiot like he's not actually doing the thing you would do if you were a really serious songwriter and kind of had a break and really wanted to capitalize on it he's blowing it and then he's, he's got sort it. of Oh, go ahead. That's because he's cut his vanity plate. Oh God! Yes. What is it? Oh, it's like, baby, can you dig your man or something? It's, like, dig your van- man. He has his cal. He like so. How we see him, he's like he's he's buzzing over the the uh, bridge into New York. Um, mm-hmm. His song is playing on the radio, and then we see him pulling up in his street in like I think he like lives in Queens or something. Um, and mm-hmm. he's got his vanity plate on the front, his California vanity plate that just says "Dig Yo Man." Man, it's such a classic 90s setup, too. Just, like, the aerial shot over the bridge into New York while the song plays. My notes actually just say, Larry Underwood's song is so great, ha ha. And then after that, it just says, Larry Underwood rules, ha ha ha. (laughs) That's just what my notes say. So I must have been reacting to that vanity play because it's very good. Mick Garris in the commentary is talking about, like, shooting all these scenes. And he's like, yeah, we're trying to make sure that you know it's desolate. You know, there's not that Mm -hmm. many people on the streets. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he's talking about the color timing of the shots inside Larry Underwood's mother's house and how they are particularly muted on purpose because they want you to feel like we're on the downswing. There's a lot of aesthetic talk that goes on in uh, the Mick Garris universe. But uh, yeah, he doesn't really talk about uh, any of the acting choices that are being made. You know, uh, those aesthetics, I really think that the first two, three hours of this is, are so good. And those aesthetics, they come across even if I wasn't consciously noticing them. There's a really strong energy, visual energy, to the Larry Underwood sequences, like the where he's talking to his mom. And that's also the most some of the most memorable stuff in the book for me are just those opening sequences, and especially when he's in New York, because that would be such a sort of intense place for the downfall. But it was also intense watching this in the midst of our own pandemic, which has played out extremely differently in some interesting ways from from the one envisioned in the stand. But then there are moments where, you know, you feel those sort of, those like shocks of recognition. And I <laughs> thought, I, I found that really interesting. There's a scene really early, I think it's actually not in New York, I think it's when it's like they're in the lab and you see everybody's dead. And then on TV, there's like a game show happening. Mm-hmm. And I just 
it, that really struck me <laughs> just because, you know, I'm sure you both feel this way where I'll be watching anything from any time period that isn't right now. And it'll be a bunch of people in a room together and they're all shaking hands or like a game show, a big audience is together. And I can't not notice it and think about it. And seeing that juxtaposed with all the dead people where it's like the world has no idea what is about to happen. But right here in this room with all these dead people, we're they are all extremely aware of what just happened because they're all dead. And like seeing that juxtaposition and thinking about how just the world that we were in in like January of 2020 where we were like, yeah, cool, I'll go meet you at the bar, friend. And like, and then we didn't know that, you know, in just a couple of months, we were all going to have our lives kind of changed in this profound way. Obviously not all killed and it wasn't as dramatic. But I, I feel like there are moments like that in these opening sequences that are pretty effective and really I, I found them very effective anyway. Well, in the in the book episode, uh, you know, Michael and I did some kind of speculation because we're we're building, or at least I'm building, you know, this kind of ideological model of Stephen King, mm -hmm. right? It's like almost like Stephen King is an alien, and it's you know with these like <laughs> sure. you know artifacts that I'm finding, you know, whatever mm -hmm. I'm like on the moon. You know, <laughs> this one would be a major discovery. Shit. The stand would be like a treasure trove of, of <laughs> exactly. Of this is stuff. like if this is like a rival, and Stephen King's on the other side of the glass, <laughs> and he's like he, he's like calling over to you. Cameron, he's like bad father motorcycle right right i'm picturing like a floating sort of you know thing like one of those aliens but it has his glasses on <laughs> and so but yeah no so that's exactly what it is right and it's so gratifying to to hear things that i said in the book episode Stephen King just saying them out loud mm, <laughs> like in mm -hmm. the commentary, right? Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of this episode, and this is kind of tying in, I think, to, to you know, the kind of very contemporary right now momentness. So Stephen King says um, that he, his political consciousness, he built his political consciousness in the 1960s of like, you know, seeing protesters getting beaten in the street by, um, by cops, right? And he mm -hmm. says that that meant that he had two kind of like principles emerge out of his youth. One is a trust in common people, just like the people at the gas station. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And two, a real distrust of anyone in authority. And those are direct yeah. quotes. Um, <laughs> and so for him, right, uh, for him, the whole first half of the book um, and the whole kind of, I, I guess, first episode of this is really a story about people in authority failing the common man. Right. Um, and, and not just failing them, but like poisoning them in some ways. Right. So, you know, in the book episode, we talked about there's the, the, the kind of tossed off plot about the U.S. government going to other countries and releasing Captain Trips, the, the super flu. So no one knows where it came from. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Um, oh, I forgot that that happens in the book. Oh, geez. Yeah. It's like a really short little little kind of piece to it. And that doesn't show mm -hmm. up in the, the miniseries. But there is this uh, Ed Harris role. God, right, he's so like, good. Yeah. <laughs> the, the manager. He was only on the production for two days. Yep. I um, was like watching it. I was like, this dude rolled in for, for six hours and then left. <laughs> like he, Exactly. 100%. Right. And he wouldn't do TV either. I mean, uh, I forget what string they pulled. They pulled some string to get him to come and do it. He was just born to be a military guy like this, too. Like, he's just, <laughs> he's perfect. Well, he'd just done The Firm, which is like a wild thing to think oh, that, yeah, that sure. Ed Harris would go from, like, The Firm to coming and showing up yeah, on. Yeah, I guess The Rock was, like, a few years after this. And that's what I, I just yeah. picture him as Hummel or whatever that guy's name was in The Rock. <laughs> this sort of upright military man. Um, but, but anyway, that's all to say. So, but, you know, it, thinking about, you know, our own kind of, of, you know, kind of 
purposeful mismanagement, it seems like, of, uh, you know, a real world <laughs> plague condition. Uh, Stephen King's deep pessimism about authority, like, I, I was like, dang, you know, his critique here is that um, not only would we be on the receiving end of, like, government uh, ignorance, maybe, but it would, in fact, be malfeasance. <laughs> and, right. uh, you know, that's that's kind of seems to be what happened. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I, I'm I was sure. Really feeling it. I'm sure you talked at length in the book episode about this, but like I, I've been struck by the differences in the way that our government mismanaged the coronavirus pandemic versus this. Look, where, like, this is so. Um, it makes sense that he would have based a lot of his view of authority on 1960s protests and like Kent State and stuff, like because there's so much more aggressive violence from the military in this, um, and I'm in the book. I feel like even more so. Uh, but it's but it's I, I feel like it's really gripping all of the sequences of like, you know, Ed Harris watching it spin out of control and them trying to control it and just like killing civilians anyways, even though they know they're just buying time. And when in reality, like it was just sort of like the president just got on TV and completely lied to everybody for years and then or for months. And then all these people just believed him like that's such a weirder reality than this, which actually feels more uh sort of neat in a way or more more like tidy fictionally because it's just like oh yeah the government they made the virus to begin with they like completely like brutally suppressed it until it was far too late to do anything about it and like public health officials could do nothing because they were lying to the public about it and the reality was far stranger than that but it was it was wild to watch a dramatization of something where there were all of these little notes that would sort of you know, ring in harmony with things that actually had just happened to us. It was it was a really interesting uh, comparison to make, I guess. The the other military thing to say is that the uh, the little like really short scene that's in the miniseries where it's the journalists and like the the military comes and mm-hmm. uh, you know stops the journalists in the on the highway or whatever. There's a shot of a helicopter. Oh, it uh, just it just lands and then it takes off. I was like, <laughs> I have this in my yeah, notes. So weird. that's because there was a re- they were near a real military base I, and they just mm-hmm. they flew over and saw all these army trucks or whatever these like fake trucks and they just landed to see what was up. And Mick Garris was like, "You need to shoot that, shoot that helicopter." It was so <laughs> removed from the context of the scene. I was like, "There has to be," or I, I was assuming like they could get a helicopter for ten minutes because they called in a favor and so they just landed it and then took it off. And at the beginning of the scene, they used the landing and at the end they had the takeoff. There is also the Kathy Bates scene, which is yeah. great, <laughs> I think, and also is like very um it is that same view of like the military as this brutally suppressive force where they come in and they kill her on the air which does that happen in the book i'm remember am mm-hmm. i remembering correctly that there's this like weirdly racialized scene where like some black militants like take over a tv station and that was not in the miniseries but am i what am i remembering that might here? be in the expanded version oh because yeah i read the 1994 version of the book that was like after the or at time to come out with the miniseries and yeah he did add stuff yeah, yeah, you're remembering something that's from the complete and uncut text. Uh, okay. But this scene that, that with Kathy Bates, uh, the character's name is Ray Flowers, uh, does in fact show up in both versions of the book, uh, both the original okay. one that we just read and and the later one. Um, and Kathy, it's a it's a man in the original uh, text, but Kathy Bates comes in and uh, you know shoots this very very quick little cameo scene. Uh, I'm assuming that was like. Yeah, she wanted to do it because of misery and stuff. Right? Yes, exactly. Right. She's she's very, very recently off her Oscar win for misery. And, uh, you know, she's she feels she 
it seems like she's on a good relationship or on good basis with, you know, Stephen King and this entire crew. Yeah, she's having fun in this scene. Like, she's great. I think that that whole sequence is great, mostly just because she's so fun to watch and she's clearly having a good time, like, you know, just on the microphone kind of doing her thing. And again, it was another scene where she probably just helicoptered in and shot it in like an hour and then was like, okay, I'll take my check later. Thanks. Yeah. And also another Uh, thing to note is uh, Ed Harris shows up here because the previous year, 1993, he was in the television film uh, for Needful Things that aired mm. on the USA Network. He was Alan Pangborn in that. Okay. Yeah, um, uh, I believe Stephen King in the commentary says that Ed Harris was willing to do this partially, it is now coming back to me, because his first starring role was in a, um, gosh, Night of the Living Dead, uh, Romero. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. His first leading role was in a Romero film, and he knew Stephen King from that. Got oh, it. okay. Yeah. There's it some all other, comes back around. Do they is has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talked about why he's in this? That's that's another like uh, interesting casting. Garris explains. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is just in here for two scenes. <laughs> okay. He's so great. Hold on. I, I like love that he's in this. <laughs> so hold on, a couple things. Uh, I was looking up uh, as you were talking about uh, the the Romero connection. Uh, Ed Harris was in uh, George Romero's film Night Riders. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar yeah. with this movie? <laughs> yes. Oh, interesting. No. Um, it's about a a, a a troop of traveling motorcyclists who joust. Oh, that sounds uh, sweet. <laughs> and they live according it to is. Arthurian ideals. Anyway, that's where that's where Ed no, Harris and really? George Romero oh, yes. like motorcycle nights. I gotta see this movie. Yes. Yeah, uh, and Stephen King's in it. Stephen yes. King is cast in that film oh, as like boy. one of the like goofy dumb guys. As I'm he shocked always to hear is. that's who he would be cast as. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's that. And on the subject of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, as you might expect, he is a huge Stephen King fan. That's why he's Mm. here. Uh, But a really funny He's also a huge Stephen King fan. (laughs) (laughs) Relatedly, uh, one of the things I learned, I think, from the Mick Garris interview, uh, that's very funny. He talks about how, uh, you know, like Cameron Crowe a couple years, you know, a couple years back talked about Vanilla Sky, his Tom Cruise movie, which was the first movie that they ever uh like you know got permission to film in like an empty Times square or something and then mm-hmm. he's like actually we did it first <laughs> and how it works is you get up really really early um and you just have to aim your shots really well and it works out having... right because he's so yes. tall oh sorry go ahead <laughs> uh, this is it uh it, it worked out really well kareem abdul jabbar is so tall that you can shoot up and it doesn't oh, matter man. if anyone else is in the background of the scene <laughs> i noticed that one shot i was like this really looks like times square how did they do this and that is fascinating that totally makes sense that uh, they had to shoot it up and then because he's so tall it made it even easier to do it that's hilarious he's so good i love that character and just i mean he's i guess he features in the first scene with flag which is like not a great scene where he like kills the deer. That's kind of where the movie or where the miniseries starts to feel like, oh, okay, this is going to feel like a dated corny thing is like that sequence. But I I do really (laughs) like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in general in this and just his recurring character. He can do it all. He can play basketball. He can act. He can do cultural criticism. What can Mm -hmm. he do? It's true. It's true. It's a, he's, he's really a Renaissance man. Um, Rob Lowe says in the commentary here, this is kind of related, but not really, but, uh, he tells a story about getting lost in the Utah jazz parking lot 
with Steve and Tabitha King. Really? Oh, that would probably be bad. <laughs> they went to a basketball game. That would either because... be a fun experience or like a weirdly increasingly tense experience. You really can't find your way The reason he tells out. the story is that, uh, like, and this is the most Steve King thing you could imagine. So they're lost and Steve King is getting like increasingly pissed off because yeah. they can't find their car. Mm-hmm. And, and then Stephen King himself says, well, I guess I found the plot for my next book. <laughs> <laughs> And then that he winds up working it in. That would be a weird thing about hanging out with Stephen King in general is you'd always worry that what you were going to say or what you're going to do would wind up in a Stephen King book <laughs> in like a way that you that you wouldn't be prepared for. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we were talking about the the Canadian tuxedoed uh, villain of the oh my goodness. of the uh, film. Um, what do y'all think about Randall Flagg? This so this is the so was the stand the first appearance of Randall Flagg as like an archetype and a character. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. He, in, yeah. in a way, I was gonna say like, King King wrote a poem in college that is about oh, okay. Randall Flagg. And he had am I wrong in that he had like started writing the Gunslinger when he was like nineteen or something, right? But he hadn't mm-hmm. published that yet because mm-hmm. Flagg is a character in that. So I guess this archetype has been with King kind of since the beginning, even though this is the first. Kind well, Randall Flagg gets like retconned into the Gunslinger, like a, a character that's in the Gunslinger gets transformed. So the into man Randall in black Flag was later. not called Randall Flagg in the Gunslinger, is that in the first book in that series? Correct. Is that it? Okay, cool. Got it. I was yeah, kind no, of no, no. Roland sure. knows him as Walter. Right, yeah. he's just Walter, the man in black. And then is Walter the Randall Flagg, or are they just different people? He eventually becomes spoilers for uh, many books down the road, but he eventually is retconned into being the same guy. Right. Although, uh, hev- you know, Michael well knows this, being involved in Stephen King uh, fan forums in the early 2000s, but hotly debated whether Randall Flagg is any of these characters for a very long time. Right, he mm-hmm. kind of hops around. Man, I gotta reread The Dark Tower, but also I don't want to reread The Dark Tower. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's good casting. Um, Jamie Sheridan is has a huge face. I think Cameron, I emailed you at one point. Like, you did. holy shit, the actor playing Randall Flagg has the biggest face of any man alive. And he, uh, yeah, he has a, a huge face, and he works. Like, I think his actual human appearance works because of his physical size. Like, it, he's a. It's a weird take on the character to make him this kind of, I don't know, heavy metal roadie kind of guy with this epic mullet and sort of like that energy is just a little strange like i i'm not totally in love with everything about the performance but i think that his physical appearance his size and just the way he looms you know his his first scenes with uh uh with what's his name uh, with lloyd are are you know like i think he he pulls it off and it's largely just because he seems so much larger than the other actors like and just he takes up so much of the screen and i i did i found that compelling about about the uh the performance Michael, what do you think about uh, old, old Randy? Well, uh, not to sound a bit like a broken record, but uh, <laughs> again, my wife and I both agreed, not hot enough. Uh, Stephen King yeah. thinks he's so hot, though. <laughs> uh, he's got a good St- butt. Like, there are some good butt shots where I'm like, all right, he could probably get yeah. it. But no, <laughs> not. He's not. Again, he that guy needs to be. Yeah, he needs to be like a real slab of beefcake, like the le- actual lead singer of a hair metal band and he doesn't quite he looks more like a roadie yeah well i mean so my response to flag is i one of the things that i was thinking while watching this um 
And also, after I watched this, I immediately watched the trailer for the upcoming new miniseries uh, that's going to come to CBS, uh, where one of the Scars guards is playing mm-hmm. Randall Flagg, because apparently we've... Yeah, we've entered a, a phase where if you are a scars guard, you must play a, a king villain. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes but, uh, multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true, right? The one brother was in in both in Castle Rock and in it. That's funny. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but anyway, I was thinking, like, to what degree is Randall Flag actually kind of unfilmable? Um, but I do think that this gets pretty close. Uh, like, I mean, Jamie Sheridan is not an unhandsome man. Uh, and, and in fact, like, as I agree with you, right, I think he has like he has the exact right look. But Randall Flagg is one of those characters who when I first read this book and this is a this is weird because this is a thing that never happens for me where I'll read a book and I'll just immediately picture like a certain celebrity as that character. Um, most of the time when I'm reading a book, I just sort of like manufacture like I, I don't really like, you know, I'm imagining the book in my head, the, the scenes and they're just people. Um, I don't mm-hmm. really imagine them as like specific like persons, uh, but like for whatever reason, in my mind, like locked in in stone, uh, Randall Flag looks like a young Dennis Quaid. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can totally uh, see that. Yeah, and um, weirdly enough, Stephen King uh, says that he looks like a young Robert Duvall. So uh, whatever. Mm. Anyway, uh, Jamie Sheridan seems like a great guy. Uh, the interview with him is super interesting because uh, he talks about how, like, he understands how important this character is, not only to this project, but to kind of, like, Stephen King the person in sort of, like, Stephen King uh, fandom. And he has a real sense of, I mean, you know, the he, he said the, the funny story about how he ends up on this project is that I think he's uh, his agent gets queried or his uh, agent is sort of putting him up for the role and he's not really into it. He hasn't read Stephen King. He doesn't really know anything about uh, sort of the plot. Uh, But then he has recently at this time been on a a just ended show, uh, something on network TV. I don't remember the title, Uh, but his uh, one of his cast members, his, 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 his fellow cast members on that show is a guy named Miguel Ferrer mm-hmm. mm. who who they are they end up becoming really good friends because Miguel Ferrer shows up here as, as Lloyd Henry. Uh but uh so Jamie Sheridan and, and Ferrer are good friends. And according uh, according to McGarris, I think what happens is Jamie Sheridan mentions to uh uh Ferrer, oh, you know, by the way, I'm uh you know up for this part of Randall Flagg in the stand. And it turns out Miguel Ferrer is a huge Stephen King fan. <laughs> so he, many big Stephen King fans. Definitely like a running. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and he's like, dude, you you like you have to try out for this, right? You have to you have to try out for this movie. Also, can I try out for this movie? Mm. <laughs> uh, That's funny. And and Sheridan uh, thinks that um, when Ferrer did read, he he thinks that Ferrer did want uh, the flag role, uh, but they ended up doing like so. He ended up as as Lloyd Henry. And what's interesting is that uh, and I think this is true. uh, Sheridan says, you know, like, like, truly, like he and Ferrer were like good friends, like really good friends. That tracks. They have good chemistry. Exactly. And he says, you know, you can see like in uh, for context. Also, the interview that's being given um, is just after Ferrer died, like two years Mm. ago, passed away, I Mm -hmm. think, from from cancer. Um, So it's, it's, you know, kind of a reflection on that. 
uh and he's and sheridan says you know like you can tell in those scenes like we were like we got along so well it was so much fun uh and sheridan uh talks about also like you know he he wasn't sort of sure about the whole denim look but uh he went for it uh and he an interesting thing that i noticed in the interview with him is that it's very like the his hook right the way that he grabs onto that character is that he imagines him as a uh, vietnam veteran yeah right he says that in the commentary too yeah all right Uh, so that's kind of his in for this character as a uh a Vietnam veteran who has been totally hollowed out, right? He has no other kind of commitment, right? He has been reduced to kind of, uh, you know, laughing nihilism. Uh, so I think that's interesting. And I think that's accurate, right? I think that's a good way to read flag. I think that's actually a really canny, uh, recognition of exactly the cultural moment when Stephen King writes this character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think, um, I think, for this budget this type of movie and so on i think he's a really good flag i wish maybe they didn't give him uh such obviously fake hair extensions <laughs> yeah. he had a half wig put in it, it yeah. is a the, the the top of the uh the business that's in the front is his and then the party that's in the back is not yeah it's, yeah. Some, it's a borrowed party <laughs> mm-hmm. he, i like this take on flag it it just like with everything it's just hard when you're basing something like a character like this who is generally seen as a human being but then has to at points become a supernatural force and Mm -hmm. the way that they execute that in the miniseries is almost always extremely lackluster like his demon face is just terrible looking and the special effect just doesn't really hold up and it it just makes explicit something that I think is so much more interesting with Flag when it's at the background. Just like Flag himself is kind of more interesting as a character when he's in the background. Like, there's so little mention of just the dark man or the walking dude, the sense of him as this specter who's kind of shadowing the the heroes in the early goings. And where in the book, you know, he's he's much there. The book just has so much more space to work with, and the characters you see so much more of their inner monologues that you you just get a sense of him. You see him when he appears in their dreams. They talk about him. They think about him as just a really quick thought and then keep going where he needs to be so much more explicit and concrete in the miniseries because he's played by this actor and he has all these scenes that that's where the majority of the like flagginess has to take place is on his face and in his scenes. And he does a good job of that, but I'm so familiar with Flag from the book and I like him so much as this broader sort of spectral force the way that he exists for the first whatever percentage of the book that I always just sort of struggle with his scenes in the miniseries especially as it goes on and toward the end and he he just takes on a much bigger role that's really where it almost goes inert for me at various points where I'm just like this just isn't working at all like I like that it kind of like a lot of this miniseries the performance starts pretty cool and then deteriorates the more of him that I see at least for me yeah, the uh, McGarris. Uh, well, I think the scenes that really work for that are that that kind of because right, it's a miniseries, so it's got to work in the visual realm. Um, mm-hmm. And so instead of all those kind of thoughts about uh, you know Randall Flag, they replace that with all these cutaway shots of like crows. Yeah, him uh, sitting on the know. telephone pole. That's a great <laughs> one. Yeah, that yeah, where it cuts back and forth and it's him and then it's the crow. But and so I really like those. McGarris actually talks mm-hmm. about uh, the animal performances. He says. Well, I, I should say, so the commentary for this is similar to the commentary for The Shining, 
miniseries in that the um, it's cut together from a bunch of different commentaries. And so there's one commentary that is Mick Garris by himself. There's one commentary that is Mick Garris and Rob Lowe. There's one commentary that is Mick Garris and Ruby D. There's one commentary that is Mick mm. Garris, uh, Jamie Sheridan, and uh, Miguel Ferrer, which is fascinating. Oh, I um, and, and so you kind of get them talking to one another. Um, and then there is Stephen King by himself. And so this commentary keeps cutting back and forth from from all of them, and which is unfortunate because I actually might have wanted to listen to some of those. Um, but McGarris, across several of these, there's a little bit of redundant information since it's from all these different uh, recording sessions. He says that the crows are played by ravens probably five times in the commentary. Hmm. He lets us know. Uh, but the other piece of interesting animal fact uh, is that the dog that played Kojak was too dumb. <laughs> the, it, the, the dog could not do the same thing twice. And so that is why in every establishing shot, the dog is in it and then the dog goes away. Yeah. Kojak kind of gets shorter shrift in this story because I remember liking Kojak a lot in the books. And then, uh, yeah, he has just kind of because he he plays a kind of bigger role with Stu toward the end, right? And like helping Stu stay yeah. alive. And then well, he's I, mystical and magical, basically. Right, right. Like God kind of works through the dog or something. Oh, yeah. and you know, I this isn't related to Flag, but Ray Walston, who plays Glenn, I really like that actor. He was um, in the show Picket Fences. Did either of you watch that yeah. show, or were you aware of that show? I, <laughs> I for a long time, I I would just think of that show because of Tom Skerritt. And I would just yeah. be like, what was that show? And I was basically like, ah, it was just kind of like white people doing stuff. Like that was kind of what that show was like in my mind because I think my parents kind of watched it in the 90s. And then I went back and read about it. It was like a David E. Kelly show. I had completely forgotten that, but that actually kind of tracks. And um, he was the judge on that show. And the whole time I was watching this, I was like, I really like this guy. I feel like he was on that show Picket Fences. And he was. Anyways, Kojak just made me think of that. And I wanted to shout him out because I think it's a great performance, actually. He brings... He doesn't have a lot to do, but Glenn is such a great character in the book, or like he plays an important role in the book, and I think that Walson was was good as him. Yeah, he apparently showed up to set uh, having memorized every line in the whole script. That oh man, I love wow. him. Just all like, of his lines. A, I'm yeah. a total pro. Like just show up and be like, hey, yes. this is what a professional would do. I'm taking it seriously. Yeah, well, because uh, he's originally a stage actor, and so mm -hmm. he just worked it like you would work a six hour play, um, and so showed mm -hmm. up day one. Apparently, he was super. Uh, like super cranky is what Mick Garris said, and like in a in a loving way, he's not complaining about him. But mm -hmm. uh, apparently, because he's a stage actor, and apparently had uh, suffered enduring injury to his eyes because of stage lights, oh. which I didn't oh. know that was a thing, but apparently yeah. it is. And uh, so he would wear completely blacked out glasses all the time, you know, like welder's goggles, basically. And so he would be like sitting somewhere and trying to be very quiet and kind of prepping for his scenes wearing these glasses and, you know, was really cranky if anyone interrupted him or whatever. And so Mick Garris said a lot of his time was devoted to like giving him shit about it basically and like making him be cool. Um, so I thought that was interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. Um, other, other interesting flag facts, uh, which is my sub sub podcast. Nice the flag um, facts. That could be its own whole <laughs> podcast. <laughs> But, um, yeah, Stephen King says, you know, like you were saying, Michael, earlier, um, uh, Stephen King said he wanted mostly an unknown actor for Flag, so someone who was not flashy. Mm -hmm. uh, people who were floated for this, uh, apparently, uh, um, gosh, um, The Fly, I don't know why, I'm, Jeff Goldblum. 
Oh my god! Oh my god! Wow! Yeah, this, that would, well, that would be yes. like Tim. That's like on the vibe of Tim Curry as Pennywise. That's sort of. It would be yes, a really exactly. much more flashy and like memorable performance, but in a way that would probably have been de- detrimental. <laughs> yeah, the, he said several other people, and I'm forgetting now. But Jeff Goldblum is the one where I was like, okay, Holy interesting. Shit. Yeah, that I was um, say that's also like super confusing for someone being like relatively unknown, because this would have been the year after Jurassic Park. Well, right. no, so that's what the studio, sorry. So that's what the studio wanted, a big celebrity like that. Oh. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Stephen King against that said, you know, I want an unknown. And so that's how Jer- Jamie Sheridan kind of comes into the thing. And he specifically wanted him to look like he would be on a romance novel cover. Um, Stephen, mm. this Jamie Sheridan is who Stephen King thinks straight women are attracted to, like explicitly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see um, that. Which is why he looks like Fabio, basically right. on those like uh, firelight scenes, right? I mean, he is explicitly <laughs> yeah. evoking that. Right. Oh, um, good God. Uh, and so, so that that's part of it. The other thing is the or another interesting flag fact is when um, they are in the uh, prison. Mm-hmm. where he meets Lloyd Henry for the first time. So they shot that in a real prison, and the prisoners were told that a Stephen King uh, thing was going to be filmed there, and so they all left letters to give to Stephen King. Uh Because everyone was reading books. And sure. So, uh, oh, yeah, sure, I guess so. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, they all like left letters for Stephen King to um, to read, which which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that is. Um any uh, some other stuff Stephen King talks about Randall Flagg for like five full minutes in the thing he says that Randall Flagg is quote the best villain I've ever crafted um he is says that even he's a fair a, thing to say like Randall Flagg is every villain you've ever crafted like how can you say he's the best <laughs> villain you've ever crafted he's well, like it makes very, a lot of sense why he keeps character. reusing him you yeah. know what I mean right because yeah. he's like well it's the best thing I got going on so I might as well bring the, bring that dude back yeah um he also says he's a man of the people um explicitly mm. so there's I don't know. Randall Flagg I mean, is? I know. Yeah. Well, there's a concept in the books, right? Where because the book ends so differently. Because the book ends with him on the island, or is that the the version that I read? Is that that's not the extent, in the original? That's not in the original version. Okay. The original version. Jeez. This is an adaptation specifically of the original unexpanded version. How strange that he would mm-hmm. also release an expanded version of the book at the same time. Though I guess that sold a bunch more copies because he did that. Well, it was a couple years earlier too, because that was nine. That was nineteen ninety. Michael, is that true? Yes. Oh, that was when he did the expanded edition. Yeah, so it's like mm-hmm. a few years before this. Okay, okay. Yeah, because that ending strikes me as it really reframes Randall Flagg as this more like elemental aspect of humanity who will always be here, you know, in order to like enable our darker our darker impulses. Where yeah, which does track with seeing him as a man of the people. Like he's it's a he's a, a dark man of the people, but he is kind of that. I guess that comes across in this version and this performance, though. I don't know. I don't know if I really buy it. He just sort of seems like this asshole, <laughs> really, you know, like a lot of the time, like throughout this. I'm not really sure why anybody would follow him, though, like you said, Ferrer, he and Ferrer have this chemistry and their scenes are like, it's probably the most like normal interactions that he has with someone. But like like his scenes with Nadine just make absolutely no sense. And it's never yeah. clear at all why Nadine is attracted to him or would be under his thrall or anything like it's just very strange uh so let me let me read you a stephen yeah. king quote here about please Nadine. do uh because i sent this to michael last night because i was just so bewildered by it and it tracks so much because so in the people you know who have already listened to it will know this but 
Um, we talk about Nadine for a long time in the book episode because Great, Nadine, I can't wait to listen to that. Well, because Nadine doesn't make any sense as a character. No, like, she's a, a bizarre bottom. character. She she's so important, like, but yes. makes no sense. <laughs> like, so it's well, such a well, it's kind such of a hard thing to reconcile. You know I mean? Yeah, I guess that's true. Kind of and kind of not. Um, but uh, okay, so this is Stephen King. <clears throat> Quote. If there was any character in the stand that I never really understood, it's Nadine. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. And and as I said to Michael last night, yes, we know that, Steve. Like, it's clear to anyone who reads the novel that you don't know. And so for, you know, in, in this um, uh, miniseries version, right, paring her down even more doesn't help. Oh, my God, and no. So, and I guess it's true. Like, I say she's important because she feels like a fulcrum character she moves through all of the storylines and goes from you know the good guy's side to the bad guy's side and has so many interactions with so many characters but at the same time right what does she actually do <laughs> like what other than i guess like seduce men toward the dark side that she kind of does that some but yeah that that is she's like both important and kind of so insubstantial that it's hard to even get a grip on what what her function was in the story in the end yeah um and mick garris really hates um i don't i don't uh, uh the actress's name is laura san giacomo oh i always think of her as yeah. from just shoot me i i was not familiar with her before this yeah. uh miniseries it's, it's um, a very different performance and and it doesn't yeah. it's a she is this isn't she's it's a very strange performance in this in my yeah opinion. she's also in um uh soderbergh's sex lies and videotape yeah yeah um, she's mm-hmm. in that um, but, uh, she, um, uh, her wig is something that really bothers Mick Garris, uh, uh-huh. because her, her real hairline is pretty low. And so they put this wig over her, over her hair, right? Because they need it to change color over the course of the, the series and all that right. stuff because of the things that are happening to her. And that's kind of part of the character, I guess. And so she just has this aggressively bad wig. Um, it's weird my notes just say nadine has such a small face and i think (laughs) it just it just there's something about her proportions that feels strange and it has to be the wig that's making this happen but it's just like you're really concerned with face size kirk i it's i guess that's true i i think it's i notice people's faces so much because you know we're watching these versions of these these characters but that is true i guess i do i do kind of focus on their faces a lot i think there's just some unusually sized faces in this miniseries though like <laughs> she's she's taking up she's like leaving extra room for flag then to take up with his huge face <laughs> there's only so much face real estate available right, right. In, they're like look the sorry <laughs> sorry laura listen but, uh, on your average television a- <laughs> screen in 1994 <laughs> yeah we're gonna need to we're gonna need to go a little smaller with the face if you can do that for us <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, she's, she's kind of a deeply unfortunate character just because, uh, you know, as we were saying earlier, um, all the women are minimized and she suffers, I think the most from that in a, in a big and serious way. Mm-hmm. Cause she just kind of moves through the plot. I, I think, uh, importantly, or kind of, I, unfortunately, um, much like the shiny miniseries, although that was later, you know, this show had a huge list of standards and practices violations that it went through. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I forget, uh, Mick Garris puts it, uh, the, the way that they had to navigate uh, standards and practices for broadcast TV was often uh, in, a, in a bargaining position. Mm. And so the phrase he uses is, uh, you know, I'll trade you two bitches for a bastard. Um, so oh, lots of, we'll get, cut yeah, two yeah. things out to, to keep this one thing. Um, 
Standards and Practices was very unhappy uh, they, with violence, so they couldn't really show as much violence as they wanted to, but more than willing to cut them some slack on sex. Interesting. And <sighs> especially the last episode of this is extremely horny. And also, um, like, sexually violent, I will say. I think that the most yes. distressing thing in this whole miniseries, which is also distressing in the book, is, like, the I guess it's basically a rape scene when when she and Flag finally whatever consummate do whatever it is that he's doing. I remember the description in the book is like deeply fucked up, and then when he brings her into Las Vegas and she's like totally out of it and like kind of holding her crotch like she's in pain. I was like, dude, this is messed up. Like I the fact that this was on TV is is pretty wild because it was it was really distressing like just seeing it. And it does, it did strike me as the kind of thing that standards and practices would have not cared about when then they would have cared about something that is like actually much less problematic or distressing or sort of, you know, hard to watch. Yeah. So they cut out. So, so to, you know, to give an example of, of kind of that bargaining, right? So they're keeping some of that stuff in the, that, you know, you know, sexually distressing stuff that's happening in that last episode, as long as just, or as well as like just the straight up TNA stuff, right? So there's like Mm -hmm. the. Uh, Dana, the shot of her that's just in her underwear, right? Yeah. It's like full yeah. frontal into the camera, right? Like that's just being kept in to you know get people interested in the in the last episode of the series. But um, uh, so, but what they're losing on the other side of that to kind of keep that material, the stuff like the uh, gas station shooting in the first episode, mm-hmm. uh, they had to really tone the violence down for that. And so, yeah, the the network very willing to keep in sexual stuff or trade around for sexual stuff, both sexual violence as well as uh, you know just TNA content, mm-hmm. uh, salacious content. Um, uh, but, but really, really limiting on what violence they could do, uh, which kind of, I think tones down flag in some ways. I think that if flag is able, so when he kills Sam Raimi, right? Like that's <laughs> yeah. a Randall flag scene. And you could yes. imagine two or three more of those that would really kind of fill out the kind of divine violence of that character. And, uh, but they couldn't do it because of standards and practices. You know, I wonder about that because if I'm remembering correctly in the book, when that guy dies, it's just sort of. There's a mystery to it. They don't exactly explain what happened, right? It's actually similar to the sex scene with Nadine, where she just sees basically his like demon dick, and she and she starts screaming. And isn't that kind mm-hmm. of the end of the scene? And that's no, it's a little no. bit more explicit. Oh, it's than more that, explicit than that. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, well then, never mind. Because I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember when the Sam Raimi guy gets killed in the book. Isn't it kind of just like teeth? It's just something like yes, he has yeah, so yeah. much teeth, so many teeth, but you're not clear on like what he did. He just sort of like ate his face or something, but you don't entirely see it. So yep, there's I guess there's a there's a world where you see more and it's more disturbing because it does feel like they just kind of cut away and you're like okay, I guess he just like ripped him apart or something. And they could have showed something more to indicate that it's it's more than just a violent death. It's like something un- inhuman, something otherworldly that happens, and that doesn't quite come across. Yeah, the other thing they had to fight for, weirdly enough, was the uh, Lloyd Henry with the rat with a bite taken out of it. That was a real hard one. Yeah. So Stephen King says basically anything that was gross or that's like, uh, you know, um, yeah, I guess gross is the best word for it, right? Which Stephen King loves to put in these things. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Anything that was gross had to be fought for. So um, the 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 rat with a bite taken out of it. Um, 
and the amount of snot that's in it or that's in the series in general like the wet grossness uh mm-hmm. oh and mm-hmm. uh when harold vomits after coming out of like the cdc thing mm-hmm. that was a big thing they had to fight for uh, on-screen vomit is apparently really hard to do in broadcast television or was at huh. the time isn't it that's yeah. an effective reaction i think it kind of conveys it kind of conveys the whole thing i was surprised they even that they didn't cut that them going back to the to like visit the infectious disease disease where like that just felt like something that um you would probably cut if you were trying to make a, a mini series out of a massive book but they kept it and i guess they, that's memorable like if they hadn't had him throwing up it would have been an even less memorable sequence one of my favorite shots in the entire miniseries is Gary Sinise with an M16 in his hand, <laughs> resting on a motorcycle with sunglasses on at the beginning of that scene. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, I would, I would definitely like if this were 2002 and I'd seen this because I'd never seen this before. Um, and if this were 2002, that would be my desktop background, like a hundred percent. That would be good. <laughs> There's a so I guess at this point we've met Trashcan Man, and Trashcan Man is yeah. another character where. In a different way than the female characters who were already kind of ciphers or just just kind of not very fleshed out in the book and then have been even further reduced in this series. I feel like Trashcan Man is so is such a strange character in the book already. But because we get time inside his head and we get a little bit of backstory when we first meet him, it at least he at least makes sense as a character like he fits into the overall tapestry of the book where in this miniseries i kept thinking when we first meet him they it's so rushed it's so weird he has so many of those little isms that are throughout this this whole book like how he'll be like boop or these things that he says right I'm, i can't remember exactly what they are or my life for you he has all these like totemic phrases and the miniseries just throws them all at you at once it's just this guy blowing stuff up. You hear the kids like calling him trashy and you get the sense that he was bullied. And then you hear Flag talk to him and it happens within the space of like four minutes or something. And that really struck me as the first time that the miniseries was just absolutely not able to do justice to something from the book in a way that actually like kind of undermines the miniseries because he winds up being an important character. And he's a very weird character in the book and arguably just like inserted so that he can then do the deus ex machina at the end. But um, I, I was really struck by that watching it. I was like, if I had not read this book and was watching this miniseries, I would be with it right up until this guy blows up this thing in Indiana. And then I'll be like, what the hell is going on? Like, who is this? Like, wh- what am I even watching? That was, it, well, that's I, how it felt to me. I'm curious, Michael, how you feel about this because there, there's a big difference between the original 1979 novel that we read and the um, the one that you've read, Kirk, the uh, expanded okay, edition, Trashcan Man probably gets another hundred pages at least in the uh, expanded edition that that's not in the original version. Uh, although it is accelerated, I think uh, you know, obviously from the miniseries, it's not that different from his original kind of version of the 1979 oh. version. I mean, do, do you feel that way, Michael, or do you feel it's different? Yeah, I, I I think you're right. I mean, Kirk is also correct in that um, because of the way, you know, prose works and the ways that novels work, when we when we go into Trash Can Man's perspective, we can get like backstory and context mm-hmm. on him in a way that, you know, you can't really do with. Um, well, you maybe could do with a film, but we're not doing with this film because of various practicalities. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it feels very similar uh, and then I feel like they're aware of this. So um, 
in the book, I get the strong sense that at the beginning, uh, Trash Can Man is basically uh, normal in the sense that uh, he like society has just just collapsed. Right. He is a uh, I think, you know, maybe schizophrenic or something. Um, and he's sort of living on his own, but he has been in kind of a stable situation up until this point. Whereas the miniseries, I think, uh, has him in like weird cast off clothes. He's wearing like a business jacket with shorts mm-hmm. that don't match. And uh, the, the 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 costuming seems to suggest to me that like we're supposed to understand that he was like an unhoused person for mm-hmm. some amount of time. And now this is what he's doing when everyone is gone. Um, uh, and I like, one of the things I like about what they do with him is, uh, when the, as, as the characters are tracking, all the characters are tracking westward. Um, and you get to see, like, when you're back in Larry's plot line, uh, they're going through mm-hmm. someplace, like, they're going through Iowa or whatever, and there's, like, uh, a city, like, one of the cities I is caught Des fire. I is just on fire. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's sort of this, um, bit of uh conversation or dialogue where they're just like i don't know like how did like i don't know where like how this started or whatever and then we cut to trash can man so we get this really nice uh sense of like other characters encountering like his effects i really Mm -hmm. like that and i even kind of like uh i mean the 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 actor who's playing him um this guy named matt frewer i think Uh, Mm um i think he's got kind of he's doing kind of a jim carrey thing with it yeah, which is maybe huh, yeah. like in terms of like body language and uh, even just in terms of like how that guy is built. Right. Um, he's like very tall and thin. Uh, I I mean, it, it really leans into what we talk about on, on the book episode. Right. Which is the fact that this character is Gollum. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so I have so much more. Uh, Steve. So Stephen King in the. um this is for information for for you, Kirk, and for uh, a reminder for people who maybe have listened to the book episode. We talk a lot about The Lord of the Rings in that episode. Ah, uh, sure, of course. Specifically because Stephen King in Dance Macabre talks about, you know, trying to to, to do a kind of Lord of the Ringsy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That never shows up in the commentary, which is interesting to me. But he does say several things, or there are several pieces of information that come up about Matt Frewer playing Trash Can Man. So let me give you the two... Uh, less consequential ones, and then the one more consequential one. Oh, great. And right. this will also get us to another character. Um, the first thing is that Matt Frewer was the first person to read for this miniseries, um, and the first person <laughs> to be cast. That. Yeah, so he like they locked Trash Can Man in first for some reason. Huh. Most important role, <laughs> gotta get it. Yeah. Um, uh, second thing is that uh, Jamie Sheridan, uh, Miguel Ferrer. And Matt Frewer, apparently, when they were shooting in Vegas for a couple weeks, would go to the same strip club all the time. It was called, like, Glitter Gulch or something like that, which is a, a you know, real <laughs> 90s name. Yep. Okay. And uh, Matt Frewer would go in the full makeup because they couldn't take the makeup off in between uh-huh. shots. And apparently, a woman's breast got stuck to his face. <laughs> Like physically, okay. which is because he was like, be- was he like in like meltdown mode or whatever? Like the character was having yes. all the kind of radiation damage and stuff. Oh, that's funny. yeah. I mean, he was wearing a lot of makeup apparently the whole time too. Mm-hmm. In, in case you haven't noticed, the um, the commentary track that features Mick Garris, uh, Miguel Ferrer, and Jamie Sheridan is a real bro fest. Yeah, I can, I can <laughs> like, imagine. This is the kind of thing they're talking they're about. They're like the whole sharing time. strip club war stories. 
Exactly. Um, uh, so, you know, it gives you maybe a sense of, of what life on the set might have been like. Mm. And uh, the the other thing is that Stephen King says this. Uh, so so in the book episode, you know, Michael, we talked about how Tom Cullen and Trash Can Man are kind of like parallel characters. Mm-hmm. They work in similar ways and they're for mm. the other side, right? But they fulfill very similar functions for um, their respected, you know, kind of teams. Um, Stephen King says this. He says that he imagines the kind of universe of the stand as a black king versus a white queen. Mm, okay, that makes uh, sense. Um, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So we can sit with that for. Well, a there's, yeah, there is an immediate nitpick I would like to make to that, but um, but in in terms of thinking this of this as like two game two sides of a like equal game board like that exactly that tracks structurally. Um, and so, but, and he says this, this is some like real Stephen King, rural Maine leap of logic shit that I'll never get to. I'll never be in this mindset, but I can study it much like, uh, in arrival. Um, he says, of course, we all know that every King has a sorcerer. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Are you with me right now? (laughs) My favorite, my favorite piece in chess, the sorcerer. (laughs) Exactly. So it, that's this is how Stephen King's mind works, right? We we are beginning with a chess metaphor that immediately breaks down. He into mixes like a thousand the different shit things. out of the metaphor right off the bat. He's like, "Well, and now we're talking about fantasy kings." <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> and so so he says that the sorcerer of good in this is Tom Cullen. Okay. <laughs> Which makes no sense. No. Because Tom Cullen is the definition of a pawn. Right. In, in the thing here. Um. It, and, and maybe I'm just trying to be a little bit more, uh, have more fidelity to the metaphor than Steve does. Uh, this is why I'm not Stephen King. Um, but he says the sorcerer for evil is trash can man. Um, and that, that that's his whole kind of function is this kind of magical um, uh, fulfillment, right? This plot fulfillment. Um, it, because, you know, we, 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 we talk a lot, I think, when we talk about this and the book that trash can man is this kind of, facilitator of a deus ex machina right of this you know uh miraculous ending to the novel but tom cullen does the same thing uh mm-hmm. by rescuing Stu out of this kind of gulch or whatever right that's equally as implausible and goofy or whatever um and so i so but stephen king himself really thinks of them in parallel so it's interesting to hear about that another interesting i'm sorry i have a, a yet another trash can man fact he is based on a real person huh oh so this is one of my two I'm still holding the last one um, um, for a little bit later, but uh, one of my two Stephen King personal anecdote stories that I have oh, to tell okay. here. So yeah, Trash Can Man is based on a person from Stephen King's hometown, or, or actually his mother's hometown, which is like a small town in Maine. And when Stephen King was growing up, uh, his mother would always tell him about this guy named Freddie, who was a firebug, um, and would wait for the mail to come, and then would check and see if there were letters in the mailbox. And if those letters were there, he would burn them. And he was like a local menace, basically. Huh. Um, and so Stephen King took that, the story his mother always told him, and thought, well, what would that person do You know, after the apocalypse? And that's where Trash Can Man comes from. I've always, I feel like the 90s were a, a big period in the in the culture for like the idea of the young pyromaniac, like the firebug kid. And I've always wondered if that was really a widespread thing because it seems so built into his character. And I guess I don't really have an answer to that, but that is always something I've wondered about. The whole, there needs to be a magician thing and Tom Cullen and Trash as being like opposites to one another. I get that parallel, but it's also a little weird because in the end, Trash Game Man seems like just as much an instrument of God as 
as um, Tom Cullen is. And he's just, he just doesn't realize it. And I guess it's the thing, it's the thing you guys have talked about plenty of times where Stephen King always writes villains where like evil undoes itself. And that's extremely clear in the way that the, the deus ex machina plays out at the end of this story. But I don't know. Um, he, he He's not fleshed out enough in the miniseries to even get a sense of that at all. Like he just almost seems like he's, he's like more of a, a mechanical part of the story, but I don't really see him. He doesn't even seem that aligned to flag. Like you just, the whole, my life for you thing, their connection, it all like, or the way that he sees Las Vegas as what's it called? Like it's not Shangri-La, but it's something like that. Like yeah. this fantasy land that just is so quickly moved past in the miniseries that I would have just found it confusing if I guess if I hadn't read the expanded version that I read and and known a little bit more about it and had a little more of the sense of his like sort of internal odd way of seeing the world I mean even in the in the uh the the cut book I I would say although you know we get more of his backstory you know or you know obviously more than in the miniseries but we yeah. get quite a bit of his backstory but I would say the only real scene where we understand why he is devoted to Flag other than you know just that's what the plot demands is mm-hmm. when he is going down into the bunker to get the nuclear warhead and we get a lot of him kind of working through how could he make this up to Flag Mm-hmm. Although we mm-hmm. still don't, I mean, I think the cut version of the novel has some big conceptual holes. I wouldn't call them plot holes, but because like the plot doesn't need these things really to function, um, but but it has some motivational holes, maybe. right? Right. Um, and and in that scene, you know, Michael, you know, correct me if you can think of another one, uh, but that's really the scene that where I can think of where he is explicitly working through like why do I care about Randall Flagg and why do I want him to care about me again. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And again, it speaks to the problem of translation from prose to to film, um, precisely because we can't get uh, a kind of rationalization process from Trash Can Man and his interiority. Uh, and and to like your point, uh, Kirk, uh, at the end, uh, it I would argue that in this miniseries, it is unclear if Trash Can Man has not in fact been a double agent the entire time, right? right. Because the when la- he blows up all the stuff, it like there's the jump from to that is so strange. Well, it's like you you have this he he's just constantly saying this uh, sort of, you know, my life for you thing and he's saying it to flag. So the viewer, right, imagining a viewer who's never read the book, um sees him saying this and it's like, "Oh, he's, you know, devoting himself to flag." But then when we get him uh picking up the warhead, we don't get any of his rationalization that we were just talking about in the book. So, from the viewer's perspective, Trash Can Man uh goes goes to flag, uh, you know, has his sort of uh flare up <laughs> um where he blows up a bunch of planes uh, and then runs out into the desert and he's been muttering my life for you this entire time. So we might think, okay, he's on the outs. And then he goes into this base, he gets the warhead, he brings it back. And his like, you know, last thing he says is my life for you as like the, like literally the light of God has descended upon <laughs> Las Vegas. Um, and it, it's, you know, his golem moment, but very much like, a, oh, who is he swearing his life to at this at this point? Right. Was this really like the whole like was this God's plan the entire time? Um, you know, and that's just it's an interesting effect, but also, as we've been talking about, makes the character sort of less lesser than he was in the book. Does Stephen King. So I he talks about this in on writing, right? Like he talks about how he was stuck in the book when they got to Colorado and didn't know what to do. 
and like was mm-hmm. just having so much fun kind of writing this new civilization they were building and just was like, well, this is just going to turn into a 10,000 page book that doesn't go anywhere. And then he decided to just have a bomb go off and then end it. Does he does he think that that works? Like, does he think that that, <laughs> you know, like because it doesn't work in the miniseries and it doesn't work in the book. It just is this very strange thing. And all of these problems we're talking about, like with Trash Game Man, like that, I feel like that's like a focal point of the whole second half of this where all this stuff just sort of needs to happen and happen mm-hmm. so that the story can end, but it's so much less interesting. It's less interesting looking. It's less interesting to watch. Like my attention was even kind of wandering toward the the back third of this mini series when I was like really into it for the first half, just because like kind of who cares and why is any of this happening? And I feel like Trash Can Man and his whole journey and the fact that it does it wouldn't even make sense to you if you hadn't read the book. You wouldn't even know fundamentally which side he's supposed to be on. Like it kind of embodies that problem. There's something really weird uh, listening to Stephen King in the commentary for this, talking about that story that you're talking about. And I yeah. remember that too. Is that in on writing or is that? Dance I'm pretty sure it's in on writing because I recently read that uh, for the first gotcha. time actually, yeah. and I was and I'm and I'm I remember it because and my memory doesn't work anymore. So like I'm assuming <laughs> it must be something that I recently read because uh, otherwise I well, wouldn't remember it. So, so I've heard that too, or, you know, I've, I've read that book as well. And what's interesting about that, and I think, Michael, you talked about that in the book episode too, but what's interesting about that version of the story versus the way that Stephen King tells it in this miniseries commentary is that the bomb going off for Stephen King in the miniseries commentary is the one that kills um, some of the people in the free state of Colorado. Or yes, whatever. yes. That's the, the, sorry, and that's what I meant if I wasn't clear. Oh, that, gotcha. that was okay. the bomb he was talking about. Is like, that's, they're just in Colorado and they were happy. And he was like, I love this and could just, I love these characters, but I need something to happen. So I'm just going to blow the whole thing up. And by that, yeah, he meant Colorado. Yeah, what's well, it, and what's I think the interesting about... thing that, oh, I was going to yeah, say, go I think Michael. the interesting thing that Kirk has just pointed out, right, is that, um, in, in the same way that like characters and so on are like doubling each other in this book, uh, or in this story, I should say, uh, like Stephen King doubles himself, right? He 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 hits a point where he's like, oh, God, <laughs> sure, I don't know where sure. this where this is going to happen. Oh, I'll just blow up some characters. And then he gets to the end of the novel and he's like, <laughs> no. oh, no, I don't know what's going to happen. And he sets off another bomb, right? He does <laughs> the same thing. All twice. the characters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know, Steve, what are you doing? It really... Uh, watching it really drives home that issue. I just <laughs> where the book, at least as you're going, like I at at this point in the book, I really like the characters. I'm kind of down um, to just follow them wherever, and am at least interested in how it ends. And so, it's a little more satisfying through to the end. There's still some stuff that that makes sense, but the the miniseries to get to the ending, like this this off ramp from basically Mother Abigail returning the bomb going off, her dying and sending them on their way to the ending. It feels kind of long, like it felt longer than I was expecting it to be, given that it's actually just so compressed. Like I, the the fact, like Nadine's transition from being with Harold to being with Flag to killing herself is like three scenes. Um, yeah. The whole thing with them being spies and trying to get away, the whole yeah, the whole scene with Sam Raimi, that all just happens over this very in this very compressed kind of scattered way, where it's just it's impossible to tell even like where the narrative momentum is going, and it, it is actually like an interesting prism through which to view the book, the the source material because the source material has the same problem, but it's so much of that I felt like was exacerbated 
by the even more compressed time frame and then just the fact that I was watching actors do it and I didn't even have the interiority of the characters to keep me interested that I really I was really struck by like how much this falls apart in the last hour or so yeah um well and especially because so much of it feels like there's a lot of conversation with Lloyd and like making that stuff work out and, and having it happen that doesn't feel particularly necessary at the end. Right. Um, and it's because there's no explanatory apparatus for much of it. it. It's not as if like the miniseries can invent reasons why, you know, these people are walking across the United States and it's not as if uh, they can invent new reasons for things to happen. I mean, there's just not a lot in the novel to then adapt. And right. so when that kind of uncompressed stuff gets put on screen it it's it feels like a lot of dead air and what's interesting to me is that mick garris when talking about it right is is reading his own scenes kind of brilliantly um he's talking about these kind of wide angle shots and all the stuff that they're doing and i mean it gave me an appreciation of it um in like an art cinema kind of way but not in a plot kind of way and (laughs) unfortunately for stephen uh, king and uh mick garris right stephen king novels and aesthetic objects don't really work on the art (laughs) you know what i mean like that's not what i'm going to it for so um Um, i'm curious if if either of you found anything in your research about this i think that the spirituality of the stand also uh feels odd or different than i was expecting when i was watching this in that in those last couple of hours like or maybe hour of this like it really started to feel like i was watching christian television like christian programming uh, in some scenes Mm -hmm. like i was like oh this just could just have been something that was like written and and designed to like spread the word of jesus (laughs) where the book never really feels that way even though i like king just has this way of as sort of grounding it and building it into the real world where even he is kind of talking about the like whatever Judeo-Christian God and all of that, it never quite feels like he is or it's removed enough. In this, there were just so many scenes. I think it's partly the schmaltzy music and the acting, but it really, I was like, this just feels like I'm now, I've gone from watching this kind of salacious primetime Stephen King horror thing to just watching like Christ TV. And I'm curious, do they do they talk about that at all? Like just the spirituality or any of that? Oh, yes, they do. Oh, good. Do you, do you want to talk about your Mick Garris interview that you have? I also have some Mick Garris info about this uh, to maybe supplement. So actually, uh, a couple things. Um, one is that uh, we we very briefly mentioned Tom Cullen, and I don't know if we'll get back to him, but I just want to mention that Tom Cullen, uh, do you, I've already told Cameron this, uh, Kirk, do you know who is playing Tom Cullen? Do you know what else he's done? No, I, I I see the actor's name here, but I don't know who he is. Yeah, uh, so his name is uh, a Bill. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's like uh, Fagerbach or uh, mm-hmm. Baki or something like that. Fagerbaki, um, yeah. Fagerbaki, okay. He does the voice of Patrick the Starfish from SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> I am now looking at his IMDb, and I see that. <laughs> Interesting, okay. <laughs> I can hear it. Yeah, I see um, it. yeah. yeah, no, I just, it was just like... That is so bizarre. Uh, but yes, uh, to, to, to jump back into uh, the, 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 the religion issue, I think that this book is interesting because it is 1978 and 1990. What has happened between 1978 and 1990? Stephen mm. King has gone hard into substance abuse um, and alcoholism and come out the other end. And 
I this this I I feel this in '90s King very very strongly, and I can think of um, basically a whole cluster of books that come out basically after after 1990, where God in a a much more sort of straightforwardly Christian sense is present, um, and I don't get that sense so much in the 1978 text of the Stand. So I think there's an, an interesting thing that happens where this TV miniseries is uh, taking a kind of, uh, a, 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 it's, it's seeing the effect of what I think is kind of a, a common story for people who are in recovery, right? Which is a, a, a sort of move to a stronger sense of religion. Um, here is, uh, I'm, this, this is, this is going to give us so much to talk about, but um, in, the, in the interview that I read, <laughs> Mick Garris uh, talks about Stephen King is a believer. That is what he says. Um, he says, I am not, but Stephen King is. So we, we, hmm. I, I don't know Stephen King. I haven't had a personal conversation with him, but apparently he has told Mick Garris that he does believe in God. Um, which and makes sense and could mean a number of different things, right? There is that. This is, this is, uh, um, this is Mick Garris explaining kind of uh, the way that he, because he was asked, this is another thing, right? This is a, a, a sort of detail of Stephen King fandom. Uh, the interviewer who wrote this book explicitly asks Mick Garris, like, what about the what about the religious content? Like, what do you think of that? Uh, and Mick Garris responds and says, basically, you know, I'm not a believer, but I believe in uh, kind of America. <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, yes so here is this quote i'll have an answer that scene where that scene where Stu redmond escapes the hospital and looks and sees that waving american flag it chokes me up when i watch it to this day that flag is a symbol that has been stolen by the right and i want it back and this was an opportunity to try to take it back and remember what patriotism was about that it was we're all in this together and that it was a level playing field it wasn't just for the entitled. I hope that gets across as well, but obviously it's not a sledgehammer. The religious aspects of it are very important in the book. To accept this story is to accept this belief and that good is rooted in something deeper and supernatural that Christianity is founded in. Mother Abigail is the symbol of that, and she's able to draw good to her from that. That again goes back to what religion really was about. Rather than controlling the masses, it was about brotherly love being able to do things for others, to sacrifice, uh, to help others, I was able to put myself as a filmmaker into a place of, I'm telling a story and I've got to believe it. I'm committed to this. Hopefully that's how it plays out. Wow. That's a, that is a lot. There's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the, the sort of, I guess, point that I would draw out, right. Is I, I do feel like, uh, Stephen King basically changed his mind in between 1978 and 1990 as to what exactly the God thing in this book is, because I, in the book episode, this is a thing that I say uh, that, you know, I think you could read the stand and come away with the sense that like mother Abigail is wrong in assuming that the thing she is talking to is the Christian God. <laughs> like right. maybe she's correct. Right. But, uh, like the 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 force that she is in touch with is so sort of alien and removed that she like she is the one who imputes Christianity to it. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in this miniseries, especially uh, and this is mentioned in one of the interviews that I read, like the, the screenplay that Stephen King writes explicitly says that flag is the devil. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
Well, it's actually, I didn't think about this when we were recording the book episode, but it's, it goes back to a point that you made when we were reading Carrie, that Carrie's mother worships an entity that she is calling the Christian God, but is right. specifically a, a Cthulhu or a, a Lovecraft mm-hmm. throwback kind of character, um, you mm-hmm. know, Gnar- Gnarlathotep or something like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a a moment of kind of misrecognition. I mean, it comes up a couple times in the commentary in really weird ways. So one is Mick Garris saying something very similar to what he said in that interview you just read. He says that he had to adopt a a quote unquote, what if attitude, because he's not religious, but he says that Stephen King is a believer. He says, these are Stephen King's real feelings that are kind of being expressed here. Um, and the other thing that, that kind of shows up is Stephen King talking about, um, that he's deeply distrustful of kind of like a, a godless or faithless kind of techno world. I mean, that that's partially the critique um, that he sees uh, being made in the Vegas stuff and around Randall Flagg. Yeah, and the, I think you know, that Glenn uh, kind of articulates, right, where he's like, we're just going to do it again, which I was increasingly on yes. Glenn's side on that one when I was rewatching this. I was like, okay, I get this argument a little bit. Yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. There's this kind of like, you know, pioneerism, um, you know, going back to the good old days kind of stuff that that's in there. Um, but, uh, uh, but King uh, says also explicitly that he actually is super, um, uncomfortable with the religious mystic role too, that he also doesn't really think that, that mother Abigail specifically her like kind of way of being a conduit of God, he's really distrustful of that too. And you can kind of imagine someone who, you know, as we have talked about many times that Stephen King is kind of like the definition of the liberal center, wherever that is at any given moment. I mean, that's where he occupies. And uh, you can see someone coming out of the Reagan years and the solidification of the religious right being less, uh, you know, uh, understanding that that narratively someone who speaks with the voice of god might be useful for you but ultimately that mm-hmm. character cannot carry the world forward uh, because that might be just as bad as the kind of techno stuff and that's what he says in the commentary that's interesting um, this makes yeah, you think so, of so a few a things of, I, oh go ahead no it's just a little bit of both and right it, it almost seems yeah, like yeah. by the time we get around to the commentary that stephen king um, you, you know, is holding on to all those ideas that you were just talking about, Michael, but is also kind of unwilling to commit fully to the other side of it. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, good old middle of the road, Steve, again. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because the miniseries is so drenched in like the aesthetic of Christian entertainment. And I should say here, I mean, I'm like barely, I don't even know what I am anymore, but definitely not um, a religious person. And I, I have no like major, it's fine if people listening to this are, right? But but I don't love that aesthetic and I associate, I have negative associations with it. So I think that was part of what was striking watching it is that as the sort of soft focus, the like woman's ethereal voice coming in as like mother Abigail speaks and the voice and the hand of God appears and even the music, it just has this kind of like, you know, cool youth pastor vibe or like, like, I feel like I'm like, okay, when is someone going to try to convert me here? Like there's, I just start to get that kind of, feeling from watching it which given that they weren't explicitly going for that and the director isn't even a believer is sort of interesting that that still made its way into the into the miniseries in such a noticeable way especially toward the end where the book kind of doesn't do that um as much as and yeah as as maybe some of his later stuff does also it's it's fascinating just that he said that thing about the american flag only because 
I would imagine this commentary is from kind of a while ago. And I feel like I see that conversation now. Like that's just this, it's this thing now where it's like, oh, like leftist protesters are reclaiming the American flag and, uh, and trying to, you know, take it back from the right. So it's kind of wild that just this has been an ongoing narrative for, and it's probably just been moving in cycles for so long. Maybe that's depressing, but <laughs> but it's interesting. Yeah, I I mean I, I you know Mick Garris is of the same generation as King, um, mm-hmm. and also he specifically in his commentary you know was calling out the 1960s for his own political awakening, right? And I think in the quote that Michael read, I think you can feel that too, right? Like you know the nationalism has gotten hijacked. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure that just replicating nationalism for on the other side is particularly helpful or, or particularly <laughs> the way forward. Um, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of bad routes that can g- go down that way. Um, but I also think that partially what y- you know, you're talking about here, Kirk, is that uh, if you're someone who's not in a religious tradition and you're forced to make work that is in a religious tradition or that you think you know needs to be in conversation with it, you're just going to work in stock aesthetics, right? Mm. Like that's the only thing available to you. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think, unfortunately, right, Mick Garris doesn't have kind of a depth of aesthetic strategies for thinking about faith, both because he's got to work broad because it's TV. He talked about that quite a bit in the Shining uh, miniseries commentary. And also it's, it's not like he's super familiar with it. Right. So he's going with whatever has the biggest, broadest, you know, um, you know, biggest bucket appeal to it. And so I think that's what gives it that kind of like religious recruitment vibe is that that's just what's available to him. And I, you know, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, it's the ideology of the image that that gets associated with the the width and breadth of the American heartland, right? And, but the, and, but this, you know, I guess on the other end is what we talked about quite a bit in the book episode, which is that this book is Stephen King's imagination of what would it be like for America to start over, and mm-hmm. it it's overwhelmingly white. It is uh, pretending as if. Um, you know, many of the, the, the sins of American history never happen. Michael, as you pointed out in that episode, they ratify the Constitution immediately with no uh, edits to it, some of which might be pretty important to edit if you want to create, <laughs> yeah. you know, an equitable United States. Yeah, it's great. Let's do that, you know, day one first action. So, you, you know, I, I think that um, I think Mick Garris is an immaculate adapter of Stephen King. I think that comes with all the problems of Stephen King. You know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, it's it's unfortunate. Y'all want to learn a uh, my my second uh, big Stephen King personal information fact here? Yes, mm-hmm. it's going to change the whole way you read the novel and probably think about the miniseries. Okay. Oh my God. Well, now now I'm not sure I want to hear it. I'm almost <laughs> intimidated. <laughs> uh, Tom Cullen is based on a real person. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I almost don't want to know more about this, but go on. Okay, so Stephen, I, I don't, Michael, do you know what Stephen King's mother did professionally? Uh, she was a caretaker, wasn't she? I, I guess so. I, that's a real, that was not a leading question. I, I didn't get a good sense. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I have, um, like, and I, I, I obviously, like, if it were a leading question, I, I played right into it, but I do have kind of a vague <laughs> sense of, uh, um, like him having mentioned at some point or another, like his mother working as kind of like a nurse and like, especially taking care of, uh, I think, um, the elderly and people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the sense that I got here. So he's talking about Tom Cullen and where Tom Cullen came from. And so he's talking about um, uh, this person. Um, so Tom Cullen is based on a woman 
named, I think Ellen. Sorry, I'm searching through my notes. Yeah, uh, a woman named Ellen who uh, Stephen King's mother worked with. Um, and the reason I was asking about what Stephen, what what she did is that this person was not someone she was taking care of. This person is someone who was like, like a sub caretaker underneath her, right? She's like an assistant, basically. Mm. And so she oh, okay. uh, had some sort of um, uh, developmental disability. And she would do the the Tom Cullen M-O-O-N, right. that spells whatever. She would do that. She would say, she would introduce herself and say, M-O-O-N, that spells Ellen. Huh. So that's, that's like a memory, that, that thing that we associate, you know, so heavily with the Stephen King character to the point that people are tweeting it at me occasionally. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, which is a weird thing to do. Um, please don't do that. Um, but uh, that comes directly from a real human being on the planet Earth. Right, and it, I mean, speaks to uh, what Kirk was saying earlier, right? That uh, one of the ways Stephen King can feel so authentic is that he just takes stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right, from actual life. Th- and there's something I, I think that that's maybe the the standism. It's it's almost like a subgenre of Kingism. M O O N that spells Tom Cullen, and then when he actually says M M O N that spells Moon, um, that actually translates into this miniseries because it's it's sticky, right? Like I think that it almost goes beyond the book or the miniseries. Like I, people like know that saying that phrase. And there's so many times in this miniseries where I was watching it and having these memories, even though I've read the book, what, like three years ago, four years ago, I still didn't remember all the little isms until I'd hear, you know, uh, well, a day is one or the things that trash can man says or um, the pokerizing mm-hmm. the one guy like pokerizes people to kill them, which is such a Stephen Kingy thing to just have this extremely minor character. But he has this made up catchphrase for killing people and it's pretty creepy catchphrase and he says it in the miniseries he's like i'll pokerize you or something like that and then the guy he just sort of dies and you never get a sense of it and all that stuff is really backgrounded in the miniseries it kind of fleshes out the world and makes things feel more specific but then tom cullen's whole thing and the m-o-o-n thing that actually really cuts through i feel like it's maybe it's just the way that it's executed and the way he says it and it's this very striking phrase but it did strike me as a sort of a, a an actual, you know, character moment or one of those little uh, languageisms that that really comes across and stuck with me and and would have stuck with anybody who hadn't even read the book. Yeah, Tom Cullen is a, is a you know a character in the in the miniseries is uh, I you know a hard needle to thread maybe uh, mm-hmm. you know to to put it lightly you know this is still the early nineties when it's perfectly okay to like play characters with you know right. mental, you know disabilities um and not think twice about it right this is the era of forrest gump mm-hmm. um, and like what's eating gilbert grape right Isn't oh absolutely yeah. yeah yeah um but what, what what's interesting that i learned and so i think you know there's nothing surprising about tom cullen in that regard right i think he is right in the middle of the road of like that type of character um and i think the performance in what it is right which we recognize in 2020 as being um uh fucked up (laughs) for lack of a better word um uh is you know perfectly serviceable and and works as as well as anything else does in it but what i thought was interesting both you know the stephen king part of of it being kind of pulled from life but the other side is it meant a lot to mick garris to get this right because mick garris has a sister with down syndrome 
Um, and so mm. he he really, uh, I, I think, had a pretty firm hand in how that character was shaped and how people who treated Tom poorly were treated, you know, and how they're, you know, kind of shot mm-hmm. and positioned um, and how kind of real world, uh, you know, prejudice uh, and ableism kind of shake out in relationship to that. And I, I think that doesn't work 100% all the way through through the thing, um, but, but it is interesting that they were thinking, or at least McGarris was thinking pretty hard about how do you do this and do you do it? as respectfully as you can within the framework of the, the, you know, middle of the road ideologies of 1994. Um, but they don't really talk too much about him. I actually really would have liked to hear that actor talk about this, but I could also understand mm. why you might not want right, to revisit that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a consistency there. Like they'll use, you know, the R word, they use slurs that I would hear all the time in the nineties as a sort of, you know, preteen, I guess is, is around how old I was when this was all happening. And, and it was just far more common to be extremely cruel about people with developmental disabilities where now we've, you know, I think generally and pop culture certainly has come a long ways. And it does, I did get the sense watching this that it was pretty consistent in people who are cruel to him and say cruel things are the bad people. And that he will sometimes repurpose their own language onto himself when he's like berating himself in a way that's kind of heartbreaking, you know, and and feels believable and that especially for that time period would 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 work. So, yeah, I was actually kind of surprised. I was expecting the character to be a lot more sort of, um, oh, you, you know, like this, this really doesn't work. And aside from the casting, which just more broadly is like would not fly today and is a problem and was a problem then um, I was I was impressed by that about it, I guess, or maybe impressed is the wrong word. I was struck by the fact that it wasn't as. Um, kind of, it wasn't handled as poorly as as it could have been. The uh, speaking of casting, in a general sense, um, you know, I want to I want to read out to y'all some of like the weirdo casting choices that are made in this, <laughs> and uh, what you think about it. So we talked a little bit about Sam Raimi. Um, you know, just really quickly, thumbs up, thumbs down, opinions about Sam Raimi. I saw him and I was like, "Hey, that's Sam Raimi." <laughs> yeah, I had a similar reaction. I, he was fine. Uh, he, he's fine. It's cute, right? Like they they were friends. I'm assuming they're friends because they're both sort of in the horror world. And mm-hmm. well, he's also in the. Uh, well, weirdly enough, I think him and Mick Garris know one another, but it's mm-hmm. him and Stephen King who are friends. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that would have been my assumption. Oh, uh, yeah, the uh, well, what, what's surprising to me, right, is that Mick Garris's filmmaking style is very similar to Sam Raimi, and so in the Shining episode, I like did all this research to figure out like had they worked together, especially uh. the the special effects that they use. Like, there's so many shots. Well, there's so many special effects techniques. And there's so many shots that are shared between something like Evil Dead 2 and these McGarris productions, especially the like horror creature comes right up into the screen. Yeah, or, yeah. When his when it's when Larry's mom wakes up. It's like actually the scariest yeah. part of the yes. whole thing, yeah. <laughs> like which is kind of a random shot. But yeah, that is very Raimi. That's true. Um, and so I was like, oh, there must be all these connections, but there's not. Uh, apparently, Stephen King had a film go to Cannes at some point. I don't know what movie this was. And Sam Raimi was also at Cannes with his first film. And mm. they met there and they like hung out. And Sam Raimi looked so young that Stephen King thought about taking his beer away from him because uh, <laughs> he thought he was like 15 years old. Um, uh, oh, here's another one. What about John Landis? Who does John Landis play? He plays like one of those assholes around that campfire who almost catches uh, uh, Tom on his way back. 
That's funny. I guess my not knowing that speaks to my reaction to that <laughs> casting, but that's funny. Sure. I, mean, I was gonna say I like I I knew John Landis was in this film. Um I don't know John Landis by sight. Oh, that's <laughs> right. very funny. As soon as I saw him, I went, oh, yeah, there's John Landis. Like, I, oh, really? I recognized oh, so him funny. sight even before he opened his mouth. As soon as he begins talking, right? Like, if you know what John Landis sounds like, you know, he's very recognizable voice. But, yeah, I saw him and I was like, I turned to my wife. And I was like, there he is, John Landis. <laughs> You're like, that's um, John Landis. <laughs> uh, what about Warren Frost? Who is Warren Frost? Oh, he's George Richardson. I'm actually looking at the IMDb. Mm-hmm. Warren Frost is Mark Frost from Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. or you know, Twin Peaks creator. Mm-hmm. He is his dad. He plays um, the the doctor. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. She plays uh, the, uh, her dad. I, I can't believe I'm blanking on her name. Uh, Doctor Hayward. Yes, Doctor Hayward. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Go. Right. 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 Um, okay. Well, since uh, I'm the only person that cares about Warren Frost, clearly, right. uh, last I one care then. about Warren Frost. Okay, <laughs> good. Uh, last one, a guy whose name I'm pretty sure is Tom Holland, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you recognize it, Michael? You seem like you might know. I and did. You recognize him when you showed up? God. Um, so this is a thing. I know I had a thought about this at the time because I noticed the name Tom Holland, and I'm like, that's weird. Uh, but I don't remember the rest of it. What? Tell me more. He's the director of Child's Play. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Crap. So uh, I thought that this was um, Ray Wise for a minute when he oh. first came on screen. <laughs> I was like, is this Ray Wise? And then I was like, no, it's not him. Because he looks kind of like Ray Wise. And I didn't yeah. know that he was the Child's Play director. But um, that was my thought on Tom on this Tom Holland. Yeah, they do have similar square heads. Mm-hmm. Just sort of a similar look. Yeah, he's got a real, for being a director, he's got a real actor's look about him. I was like, damn. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he looks like he's a guy who would be in, like, you know, a 1950s war film. Oh, my gosh. I just, yeah. uh, just you know, just to double check, I looked him up. His, um, oh, he directed The Langoliers. Yeah. Oh, and he directed yeah, yeah. Thinner. He directed the Thinner adaptation. Awesome. Oh. oh, and Fright Night. Yes, of course, Tom Holland did Fright <laughs> Man, Night. Man, so this is like, yeah, this is all very, like, the Stephen King repertory yeah. actors and, and directors and these things. But speaking of his bearing, his image on Wikipedia is him like looking sort of like, you know, sort of smartly out of frame with his arms crossed over his chest. And he has a cardigan like wrapped around his neck. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very much done. Like, you know, he he was like he was having fun posing for this. Nice. That's funny. Um, Other interesting stuff that showed up here uh, in the commentary. um, I guess two other big things. Um, when Dana Jurgens is laying in bed at the beginning of the final episode, Stephen King says, there's something to be said for escapism. Yum, yum. <laughs> if you want to want to pair this with the way that uh, Stephen King writes women, mm-hmm. you know, maybe two interesting data points there. Uh, another one is, uh, th- this is chilling. So uh, Miguel Ferrer is uh, talking about his own performance and it cuts to like him after uh, he and uh, Dana have sex or whatever. And he's smoking and he says, oh, yeah, I used to smoke. Oh, and yeah. And he, he died of throat wow. cancer. Oh, yeah. and he died of oh, specifically from that. Yeah. Was this uh, when so was he actually smoking a cigarette? Would this have been when people actually smoked cigarettes on set before? Yes. They started yeah. Using the fake sm- ones? Yes. Yeah, smoking a legit cigarette on set. And apparently he was, you know, a chain smoker at the time. But yeah, in this this commentary, I think was recorded in '99, probably for the laser disc. I would assume. Mm, okay. Yeah. What did the two of you make of Stephen King's performance in this? Oh yeah, 
<laughs> oh, so here's a bit of really cool trivia to drop on All right. you. Cameron already heard this. Uh, in the early days when they were talking about doing the stand film with Romero, uh, Stephen King wanted to play Tom Cullen. Oh, wow. <laughs> Steve! Mm -hmm. I'm both glad and profoundly disappointed that that didn't happen. <laughs> Mostly yeah. glad. It, oh, woof. Woof, yeah. woof. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Stephen King is... Uh, he he's always a little treat when he shows up in uh anything that we're watching because i will always point him out to my if my, if my wife is there i'll point him out i'll be like oh that's stephen king and her oh, yeah. response is always that's stephen king like, <laughs> she, like she never recognizes him um but mm -hmm. also to me and i maybe you know i'm i'm not the the best sort of like uh, uh you know way to calibrate this but like he sticks out to me like a sore thumb <laughs> yes he, I rewatched, so I think I've seen this miniseries three times, or I guess in its entirety twice, because after I reread the book, I watched it in its entirety, and then most recently watched it like last week. And I think that the mo it was only on this time watching it that I really recognized him, that I immediately just clocked him. I was like, oh yeah, there he is. And then was just totally taken out of the scene every time he was talking because I was distracted by the fact that Stephen King was trying to play a character. But I think I maybe didn't recognize him the first time that I watched this all the way through, despite, you know, his he's got his, that he looks just like the author picture on the back of every single one of his books. Well, did you recognize Mick Garris? Uh, I did not. Who does he play? He plays like some dude who's standing in the background. There's several oh, okay. scenes. He gets his he plays the guy who yells at Stu Redmond, <laughs> who like heckles him. Uh, that's Mick Garris. I'm trying to remember. I was going to say, I think I, I recognized him because, you know, for one of, for whatever reason, I know what Mick Garris looks like. I can't recognize John Landis, but I'll recognize Mick Garris. <laughs> it's important things, right? You got to know, you got to get your director's uh, priorities straight. Um, I think Stephen King did a perfectly fine job. Like I think he does all the time. Uh, he actually has some commentary on his own performance. He says, uh, I wrote this <laughs> quote down. I even like reversed it so I could write the whole Quote down. This is the first quote. Quote, I love to act just the same way I love to play the guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, which, which poorly. <laughs> right, um, which is like, I have fun with it, but it is not my primary talent, and I am aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, so he's got a good sense of humor about it. Yeah, that's nice, because it's like, whatever. He, he gave himself a surprising number of lines. Um, he's, is he in the scene where they're in the power plant? Also a weird scene. Is that Does it play out that way in the book, by the way? That, uh, that no. The whole they all go there it isn't because that would be a very strange thing to do yeah he's like well i hope this doesn't blow up <laughs> yeah and then we all die because we're all here for some reason no it, it does not it's like yeah. the small team who does it and right, like right. lights part of boulder on fire and we get like 50 pages about it oh yeah that i like that stuff in the book right all those little where it hops from from scene to scene to scene really quickly like when all the people just die who were immune, but they die for other reasons in the book. That I, I missed book. that. I missed that from the. Oh, is that in the expanded, expanded yes. book? Yeah. So my entire memory of this book is basically different than the book that most yeah. people read when they read it when it came out. Yes, no, that's what we talked about in the book episode. That's how all the things that are like very memorable about this book are just not in the original version. Yeah, because those little vignettes are incredibly good. Like I, I think like some of the most gripping parts of the book maybe is just hopping from person to person after they've survived this pandemic but before you know while they're still extremely unsafe and the world is not a safe place mm -hmm. um that's that's funny to know 
Yeah, the other thing that uh, Steve says about his own performance is that he says he's been, quote, in previous films, quote, been typecast as a country asshole. Huh. <laughs> Wait a minute. Has he, like, acted in other people's movies? How could he be typecast in his oh, own Oh, yeah. He was in, in that. Work? He was in uh, the Romero movie that we were just talking yeah, about. Night Riders. Oh, so he's, like, in his friends' movies, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So they always want him to play that guy. He's kind of a big guy. It sort of makes sense that he would play that character. Yeah, he's six foot five, which blows mm-hmm. my mind every time. Mm-hmm. No, it's funny because his first scene is with, uh, what's her name? Laura uh, San Giacomo, who is mm-hmm. quite small and he is quite large. Mm-hmm. And they're like sitting in a car together and it's it, the, the difference in size is noticeable. Yeah. What, uh, what's the other stuff we want to talk about here? Yeah. What do we got? I kind of have worked through, um, I made a special note about um, the half wig. Oh, maybe this is an interpretive moment. Uh, you know, we were talking about evil a little while ago, uh, maybe 30 minutes ago. Uh, but I wanted to throw this out here. I actually also reversed it so I could write this whole quote down. This is Stephen King talking about the end of the, uh, the, the kind of final scenes of Randall Flagg. And he says, quote, my idea about evil is that it's extremely attractive to begin with, but you start to see that it's not very creative and it's self-replicating. It's kind mm. of stupid. And then he ties this onto or ties this into that flag is ultimately a character uh, in his like authoritarian government or whatever is trying to quote, hold on to rationality. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way of like reading Randall flag, who is a character who holds power because he can do magic. Uh-huh. Well, mm-hmm. and that's the, so a couple things where actually just one big thing, uh, what Stephen King is saying there is explicitly what Glenn Bateman says in the book. Yeah. Right, he calls him like the last magician of reason or something. Right, that sounds familiar. Hmm. I don't. I wish I had a better sense of what that entire, like, what the Las Vegas side of this equation was supposed to be, or how it stands in contrast to the people who live, you know, the good good people who go to Colorado. Like, Mm -hmm. it, it just there's there's so much in this formula or in this framework for a story um and i think that that's what makes the stand uh, like seen as a classic is because the framework is so good and the first half of it which is like establishing the framework is so good that it i can almost just overlook the fact that then they don't put anything in the frame or at least in half of the frame and so (laughs) then it just sort of collapses on itself and blows up and ends but it was it was it was exacerbated like i said before like a lot of the shortcomings of the novel are brought into relief or exacerbated by the more compressed time frame of the miniseries and the fact that you're seeing things on screen and so there's just less to work with in some ways and i guess and you're just seeing it all there but what the what is going on in las vegas like well, there's just it, it i think it's very simple it's very very clear to me they're just becoming Nazis, as all evil yeah. people do. <laughs> so I was about to say, right, like, <laughs> when they all get together, there is this, like, very clear Nazi paraphernalia happening when they get everyone together for the public execution. It's just that they're, ah, they're like, all these little things of, like, oh, I'm going to go away. Like, I'm, we're all going to leave. Can't you see the wheels are coming off? This is falling apart. It's mostly just guys sitting around at airfields and stuff. Like, I, I just don't get the sense that there's... Of, of what their community is supposed to be. And I remember that being stronger in the book, only like it's hinted at in the miniseries, like the way that they're, you're not allowed to drink or do drugs and they've become this kind of like weirdly puritanical regime. And, and that that's, they nod to that in the mini, in the miniseries. It just doesn't, it's such a strange 
idea that anyone would be drawn to this or like what they're even attracted to or why they're here. Um, that it, it, it is even clearer when I'm watching it and trying to just understand what it would be like to live in this weird hell society. They do have a public works department though, because uh, after um, she jumps off that building and splats on the ground there's someone there to spray that down (laughs) right right they clean it right up i guess we saw that right we saw them going through and getting the bodies out of the street yeah and sort of bringing bringing things back that suicide scene also is so rushed and strange i mean we've we've gone over time and again how nadine like just doesn't get enough to do and is a very weird character but all of that I don't know. I don't know if I, I don't know if I wanted more. I didn't want more <laughs> of like watching her just be this sort of abused person, you know, who is apparently just mentally snapped. But also that scene just felt so rushed and so quick. And also I was struck by just how in rapid succession two female characters commit suicide to like escape whatever torture by men. And like, it's just like, it's like, there aren't that many women in this to begin with. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. just very, it very quickly, like, it's just the same fate for two, uh, two of the only female characters in the whole thing after Mother Abigail has also died. And I was like, wow, I don't think this would have resonated to me like when I was 12 watching this or something, but it, it really sticks out now. Well, I mean, the weird thing about that too, right, is that in I think the book's a little bit smarter in that regard. Because, at least in the book, right, these are women who realize they have been trapped. And so they use what they know about evil in order to get out of that trap, right? So, Mm. like, Dana Dana killing herself is this moment of, like, you know, know, really robust resistance, right? And we're like, I think we can critique that and everything. But as written, that's the intent. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I don't necessarily know if that 100% works, but that's the idea. And it, I think that's the brilliant kind of critique of evil that's happening, um, uh, with Nadine at the end, right? She, in the mini series, she jumps off of, off the tower, right? Um, in the book, she basically manipulates flag into killing her. That's uh, right. Okay. I was remembering that it was a little different, but that tracks. That's right. And and so, you know, that's a different kind of thing of mm-hmm. uh, this woman has convinced evil, you know, this evil has one goal, right? To, to reproduce and create, you know, a line of succession. And she understands how it works and manipulates it in such a way uh, in order to undo, you know, evil undoes itself, right? This is mm-hmm. the classic Kinganism. We talk about this in the book episode too, but that's for me whatever good there is in that idea right and i think we could hotly critique the way that that works and the idea that women can only manipulate they don't have agency beyond that right that's all Mm -hmm. stephen king shit that he should have worked through and still probably hasn't um but uh the miniseries really just robs any possible for me any kind of redemptive or positive reading of that scene by exactly like you're saying right just kind of having her jump off the the ledge uh while Mm -hmm. kind of taunting him yeah, that tracks. And just the way that she is so clearly traumatized and plays it in such a kind of shocking and horrifying way and then just kills herself. Like, it's it's really rough in the miniseries. Yeah. And I had forgotten that, but that's true. She at least demonstrates a, a kind of consistent character trait in that she is smart enough to see how to manipulate someone into into something and, and uses it in that way in the book, which is, is more interesting uh, and and it is something. It isn't just sort of like suffering and then just committing suicide, which is just super grim and tough to watch. Yeah, and I think um, so. 
to backtrack just a little bit and think more about like what's going on in Las Vegas, one of the things that I read, and I can't remember if this was a thing that King was saying in one of those interviews or if this was a thing, if this was like uh, sort of Garris doing his interpretation. Um, and I think this is a it, it's an interesting and uh, sort of illuminating uh, bit about, I think, the way that Stephen King's evil works. Uh, you've already mentioned, Kirk, that there's this weird thing that happens where all the evil people in the country go to Las Vegas to not drink and not do drugs. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, the obviously there's like a weird juxtaposition there for us. The way that uh, apparently Stephen King thinks through this or around this is that part of Flag's evil is about uh, seeing it, it's it's purely instrumental. Um, or maybe it was actually Jamie Sheridan who was talking about this. Anyway, um, the reason you can't do uh, drugs or drink uh, in in Flags Las Vegas is because uh, like he only wants people who are going to be sober and go to work and be useful, right? So he's got kind of uh, this sort of authoritarian productivity kind of right. uh, uh, thing going on. Um, and again, right, I think... Uh, shows some of the just just the weirdness that goes on trying to think about like what is evil like what do i think evil is aside from what stephen king thinks it is right that it is uh he thinks it's a, a attractive at first but then you see kind of like the cracks start showing uh and part of the sort of evil attitude seems to be this uh unwillingness to like help people who falter or who stall right everyone must kind of like meet the goal on the first try otherwise they're going to be killed or thrown out or whatever uh and it's it's interesting to me how all of this makes sense right like all the stuff i'm i'm talking about i think makes sense and it really illuminates uh uh exactly what stephen king thinks is going on in in his fictional las vegas and at the same time None of that is really in the book or this mm. miniseries, right? There's there's a way in which I feel like that's a good way of putting it, that I think like almost Stephen King assumes that I understand evil in the same way he does and doesn't think he really has to explain himself. <laughs> right. Yeah, because the minute you start to try to figure out what someone's actual motivation for being there would be and what the bargain that would have been offered to them would be, it just falls apart. Like you have to imagine that I guess they saw Flag in a dream and he, they just were like, well, I guess I better go follow this guy. Like the cop, what's his name? The guy who was like the the chief of police mm -hmm. who arrests them when they go to to make their stand. Like, who is that guy? Like, he's kind of fleshed out as a character, but then he isn't. And he doesn't want to be a part of it, but then he does. Is he the same guy who stands up when they're about to dismember the two remaining people and is like, we shouldn't do this? Like the guy who's going to leave. No, Reed that's uh, Bernard from Lost. Oh, it's yeah. I knew I recognized him. That's who he <laughs> yeah. is. He's on from Lost, of course. Yeah. So that guy, I, it's just I, I get it's not a matter of time. Exactly. I think maybe. And like you're saying, Michael, it's it's kind of the the fundamental issue with the like the whole setup. Like it's it's not it's not on a firm foundation. So no matter how much time they had to flesh it out. It, they probably wouldn't have been able to do it in a way that would make emotional sense, like that would make the characters make sense. Yeah, the Stephen King talks about this a little bit in the commentary when he's talking about his idea about evil, and he says that part of the reason for the stand, or you know, part of his thinking around the stand, is that um, a big evil will defeat a little good. 
Um, and I, so I think the idea, you know, the implicit idea around a lot of the stuff with why people go to Vegas is that they are more afraid of Randall Flagg than they are, um, you know, enticed by Mother Abigail. Mm. Uh, that, you know, Mother Abigail requires you to like, you know, literally become a pioneer of a new America. And Randall Flagg just requires you to come and hang out a little while and obey the rules and you'll get all the good stuff that you used to have before. Right. Well, um, it's like, you know, you were, oh, that, that one guy that you were talking about, Kirk, right? It's like, oh, you were you were chief of police in Orange County or whatever in the before times. Well, come be my chief of police here. Yeah, exactly. Right. That makes sense, I guess. Like that it's it's just like easier kind of. Yeah. I, I mean, I think and Glenn Bateman says something to that effect when they're hanging right. out in the bandstand. Even though it just, I guess it just doesn't seem easier, but that's sort of the point, right? Is that it's all a lie because actually like living in mother Abigail's Colorado seems kind of great. Like everyone's really nice. They're having a good time. <laughs> they like, they, they sit out on the lawn and like have a picnic. Like I'm like, this looks good. And the Vegas stuff, even at its most, whatever decadent or at its best, it just seems like a total bummer. Like, I mean, I don't like Vegas to begin with. So I guess that there's, it's partly that. But it just looks crappy. Like everyone's sitting around in weird empty casinos. It's a bunch of dudes. Like no one treats anyone very well. They're all mean to each other. Everyone's kind of angling to get out of there, which I guess that is that makes sense. Like that makes a kind of sense that they would have been sold one thing and then realized over time that it's kind of curdling. But uh, I guess we don't see what they were sold. And so it just you have to kind of imagine it uh, for yourself. Maybe they're like, hell yeah, Vegas yeah <laughs> can't be bad there they love oh, vegas maybe yeah. i mean i think the other thing that is um so the 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 dark chest of wonders book that i'm i've been sort of talking about is very recent i think it was released in 2018 or 2019 so oh golly gee do you bet we get to talk about donald trump um oh boy i bet <laughs> but i think one of the ways that, like kirk the the stuff that you were just saying about how like just frankly how clearly unpleasant it seems to to be to be in vegas is precisely the way that I think is sort of like the liberal imaginary of what it's like inside the Trump White House, right? right? Where everyone is kind of constantly like uh, jockeying against one another and always looking for their way out, right? Like, where am I? Like, how do I get out of this and get into something sort of less volatile? Um, and I think, you know, part of the part of the issue, at least, right, is that uh, I think we live in a time where we realize how much of a, a an actual fantasy that is in that, uh, like, the person who goes to Randall Flagg to continue to be the chief of police because it's easier is perfectly fine continuing to be the chief of police because it's easier, right? Like, there, there's not going to necessarily be that kind of qualm because these are people who are really in it for this particular institution or this particular structure and they know who's going to uh, butter their bread. That is interesting. And that is something that I think there's a sort of a failure. I feel my own failure of imagination on sometimes when considering the Trump White House, because it does seem to me like it would just be the worst, most stressful and just bad place to be. And I do imagine it as being somewhat like that. That's that's actually really interesting, even though I'm I'm aware that I'm there must be something that I'm not able to conceive of on a like kind of fundamental level with a person who would be drawn to that in the first place. And who would go there? And uh, it seems as though this book and this miniseries also like aren't really able to fully explore that. Like Lloyd is the closest thing, but also Lloyd is just sort of a a mad dog killer, right? Like he's not 
um, he's not the chief of police. Like that character could actually have been explored in a way that would maybe provide some fictional insight into the sort of person who would then, uh, in our modern age, you know, want to go be whatever the like Chad Wolf, right? Like the mm-hmm. head of the Department of Homeland Security under Trump, and like would be really drawn to that. And those people are so different than I am that I don't understand them and fiction can be a good place to explore that and it does feel like that's just kind of not there and I'm left to fill in the gap so I'm just like I don't know why would you want to go to Las to this Las Vegas and be a part of that but that is interesting to think that it, it, you could just be you're an institutionalist you're like well I like I like I liked being chief of police and now I get to keep doing that yeah, I mean, there that that's kind of obviously it doesn't show up in the miniseries, but that's kind of how the um, the guy who is running the census of uh, Las Vegas that's kind of how his story works in the book mm-hmm. is that like uh, he's just a dude yeah. who's good at keeping track of everyone, and Randall Flagg mm-hmm. says he's going to be the the head of the uh, secret police at some point once they eventually get the secret police going. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he's just good at managing and keeping track of people, and he likes doing that, and he likes that kind of bureaucratic systematicity. Um, and so that's what he's going to do. And there's no room for that. There, there's in fact, you know, kind of an antithetical relationship to that. You know, one thing that is missing, I think kind of ideologically from the end of the miniseries that's in the book is that the miniseries is just like, yeah, well, we might, we might do okay in the future. And in the book, it's like, okay, we're moving back to Maine. <laughs> like <laughs> right, me and my right. family are going to pioneer Maine again. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's a you know a totally different relationship to in the book I guess you know you can see one of the the ways that they are oppositional is that you know rustic America pioneer you know whatever kind of colonial vibe that's going on in um, in Colorado versus we are going to recreate the state not necessarily Nazis although secret police hmm. yeah uh, Nazi but. But yeah, but but some kind of state, right, in Las Vegas uh, with Randall Flagg at the top. And so at the end of that, you get, okay, we've gotten rid of Las Vegas, so we are going to have something that's very decentralized, very libertarian, very, you know, rural Maine and the salt of the earth people, right? All this, these things that Stephen King valorizes. Um, whereas opposed to the end of the miniseries, which is like, I guess we're going to recreate the American state, but in Colorado, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's not really an ideological opposition that, that carries through. Even though um, we get that incredible scene of everyone singing the national anthem. Man, that whole uh, sequence, that town hall sequence. The, I remember there's a scene, and this it's in, in both the book and the miniseries, when Stu first gets up to talk and everyone just applauds for a long time, which <laughs> is a really nice scene. It made me think of um, the whenever that was now 500 years ago when the race was called for Biden and like people were just like, we just need to applaud for something even though like we're not really there and it feels like it's been so long since then but there was this sense of like release where everyone was just like okay let's just celebrate together because we need to because it's been tough and I really felt that energy I was like oh I kind of like get this scene on a different level now Um, even while immediately after that there's this completely uncritical like okay and America is rad we're gonna just be America also pretty much everybody here is white but that's fine (laughs) and like here we are and we're just gonna rebuild America because isn't it awesome which is so 1990s like it's so kind of Clinton era uh, just a very different view of America that we have now and really stuck out to me watching this as it, it was almost uh, charming. I mean, it, it wasn't because I was like, well, you know, I, I this was kind of a wrongheaded view and it was ignoring so many things, but it, it almost felt charming to me how sort of old fashioned that felt. 
it's like quaint uh, in the way that a children's drawing can be quaint yeah 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 exactly well the the wild thing too right is that we have this exact ideology you know a, a libertarian inflected nationalism that uh, is all about reestablishing the american order it happens in 1994 and it's newt gingrich's contract with america <laughs> oh yeah that's very true <laughs> right and so like that's the weird thing is that stephen king and mick garris are in their 1968-ishness right that's how they think of these politics right in embracing all of these values they are literally just embracing what the far right is up to um very as you're saying very uncritically right as if these abstract values of americanness or whatever have nothing to do with the material politics of people's day-to-day lives right um, and there's you like know, a disconnect and, there yeah and the two uh, importantly you're right you were talking about women uh in the kind of the unceremonious way that they're you know killed at the end of the series both of the mainline black characters are also murdered mm-hmm. uh, you know or one dies i guess and one is murdered um, and so, you know, that all of that, I think, is part of this kind of, um, I don't know, weird ideological bundle, um, uh, you know, contradictory bundle that shows up toward the end here. And you wonder um, if anyone even thought about that, right? Like, it could just be they're like, well, you know, we have a few non-white characters. And then that was as far as they thought about it. Like, I wonder if this was something that anyone even had a second thought about. Like, we're now clearly, like, a lot of people would be like, okay, at the very least, we're going to catch hell for this if we release this. And also would be like, and this is also, like, a just ba- a worse story and, and bad for all these clear reasons. Let's make a better story with a better cast. But I wonder if when people were making stuff in the 90s at that time period, they were just like, nah, whatever, this is just America. And they it didn't even occur to them that this was actually like a really grossly inaccurate thing or that there were all of these disconnects with like what they were saying versus what they were um, representing on screen and whose, you know, political philosophies they were actually embracing with the moral of the story such as it is. Well, beautifully, we're going to get a chance to find out because we're going to see someone remaking the stand in 2020. That is so um, true and I'm so my god, what do we know about the remake? Do you have the two of you looked into that at all? Uh I think Michael knows more than I do. I, okay. I think the one thing that kind of sticks out based on what you just talked about is that they've re or not recast because but they have cast a uh black man to be Larry. Mm-hmm. Um and so Oh, I think I maybe saw that. That's okay. That's at least changing. I don't know the actor's name, but I can look. Um uh, but that's at least maybe thinking about, you know, this kind of monolithic whiteness in the cast and also, you know, thinking about um, how Larry was specifically making music that made him sound black. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And and that uh, was never really investigated, even though that itself, that on its own is like a fascinating topic that could be explored, even with a white character in a really interesting way. It's just sort of touched on as like, oh, yeah, this is a thing. He just yeah. appropriated uh, black music and succeeded. And, well, anyways. it's how you know Larry is cool, right? Yeah, right, sure. That's that's the that's one of the problems of like the the Stephen King way of thinking through this problem and like the you know capital L liberal um, racism. It's the it's the I would have voted for Obama a third time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I love black music. It's so yeah. great, right? <laughs> um, Joven Adipo is playing Larry Underwood. Yes, hmm. I don't know. Uh, he was in Fences. He was in The Leftovers. Apparently, he was in Watchmen. Um, Oh, I do know him. Oh, never mind. I totally know him. I just didn't know him by name. I think he is. I think I know who he is. Oh, that's cool. He's a good actor. I just wonder if some of the story beats will be the same or if just it's I'm very curious. I'm dying to watch it. Like I'm I'm really dying to watch the new stand. Even if it's terrible, I'm, I'm, I cannot wait to see just what it will even be. 
I think I'm I'm imagining it's going to um swerve in a lot of ways, partly because, you know, one thing one thing that it's going to have that this really didn't is a bigger budget because we we now live in a post you know game of thrones world like there mm -hmm. there is a kind of visual template for what uh, a vast fantasy can look like on a television screen that we didn't have in 1994 um but yeah the some of the stuff that i saw seemed like uh there are clearly scenes that are happening that are not scenes from the book they're kind of uh if you think of the the recent it films where they'll take mm -hmm. kind of a character or the character's like problem or situation and then they rewrite that into a new kind of scene or a slightly like a, a plot line that is in conception similar to what happens in the book uh but mm -hmm. the set pieces are different um yeah. i saw like for instance there's there's definitely going to be some like bizarre scene where flag visits visits uh harold in his dreams and there's all sorts of like sexy neon light ladies dancing around for example mm -hmm. um and then I know that, uh, let me think, what was the other interesting bit of casting? Uh, Ralph Brentner, a character whom we have not talked about at all, because as I say on the book podcast, his <laughs> distinguishing characteristic is that he wears a hat. Yeah, he doesn't exist. That's he is it. The strange. He, he's, yeah, his defining characteristic is he, like, he literally doesn't exist. And in the miniseries, too, you're just like, oh, yeah, there's that guy. He has a good face. I'm yeah. like, he's, oh, he's a, you are. He's a friendly farmer. Like, that is yeah. what he is. Um mm -hmm. An interesting change there, uh, he has been changed to a character named Ray Brentner, who is um, a Native American. Uh, mm, she, okay. and it's a, a woman, um, I can't remember yeah. the actress's name, I'm looking it's it up. It's like Irene Bedard is her name, I'm looking at the IMDb now. Yes, so, so there's that um, that's going on, uh, which I think is, again, interesting because it shows, to some extent, right, an idea, like... I, I say this in the book episode as well, right? The end of this is the, the end of this story is four white men and a dog walking across the country. Um, right. And they have clearly like, you know, shaken that up a little bit. Uh, so it's interesting to, to think about, you know, if that's going to make any sort of difference at all. <laughs> a fun fact about Irene Bedard is she is the voice of Disney's Pocahontas. So yeah, the more uh, you know. there's there's some other interesting stuff going on here too. So like two of the big things I think that you wouldn't normally reproduce in 2020, or I thought they wouldn't reproduce, is, um, well, okay, well one thing is that that uh, Henry Zaga, who is a Brazilian actor, is playing Nick Andros mm -hmm. and uh, does not appear to be uh, deaf. Yeah, I was curious about that. Um, like looking back at it, just thinking, I feel like this probably wouldn't be done this way with a with a you know hearing actor playing a deaf. Character. Yeah, you wouldn't think that, and yet, no. uh, hmm. and then Tom Cullen is still in it, which I think it'd be hard to do the thing without Tom Cullen. But um, I don't know how that will play. Right, that's right. interesting because like Tom Cullen is structurally like that's a character who who has a has a purpose within this story you could also rewrite tom cullen in in a way that's like easier for the the present moment and i don't know i don't know yeah. how, how much they'll do that i bet they could that does seem to me you could just make the character like you could just make him not explicitly you know uh developmentally disabled you could just make him an odd guy or something like and, and make it a little just more subtle and it could still kind of work but yeah i'll be curious what they do god i'm curious about everything about this miniseries yeah me too i mean because the other way to do it would be just to cast an actor with an appropriate disability also true yeah. yep 
Uh, which is a much know. more common practice now and totally is fine. I think it was something that people just thought, I don't know, wouldn't work or something before they started doing it. But now I'll see all kinds of things and it's great. It works fine. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm also deeply curious. I'm sure that I will watch this first episode, even though it is appearing on CBS. Yeah. You got that to watch Picard and then canceled it because that show wasn't even good. And I'm skeptical, though they, you know, they throw money. A lot of times these sort of weird new streaming services will throw a ton of money at something because they really want a Game of Thrones style thing. Or this would be maybe a little bit more like Watchmen, like a limited series that everyone's talking about and is really irresistible. And cool. um, so there's a chance they like just really, you know, finance the crap out of it and make it great. Well, the the so the showrunner um, is or one of the two showrunners is the uh, one of the writers for Justified. Mm, okay, I like that. So show. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And King, what's King's involvement? It looks like he's not. Is he just like a producer? He and Joe Hill, his son Joe Hill, have have written a couple episodes. I think maybe they wrote the first and last episode or something okay. like that. Okay. Uh, uh, they they wrote the last episode together, and then Owen King. Uh, uh, it's yeah, yeah. Stephen King and Owen King wrote the last episode together, and I think Owen hmm. King uh, has co-written a couple of the other episodes got it oh, that's yeah, cool it is owen like... the one who like punched up the ending to eleven twenty four sixty three? i know you guys probably haven't talked about that book yet but isn't that the story that he actually helped king fix the ending to that book which i won't spoil but has a actually pretty good ending <laughs> so i that, think that was i think that was joe hill that might have been joe okay yeah. got it um well that maybe bodes well then if if, if one of his sons is helping him <laughs> Yeah, um, Owen King has almost, I think, the vast majority, because he's also a writer, but I think the vast majority of his published output has been with Stephen King. Oh, yeah. okay. So he's just sort of like, like helps his dad out. Kind of has that vibe. I My impression is that when Stephen King inevitably passes, um, the person who will like continue those projects or finish whatever needs to be finished would be Owen King. He, he feels like he is the uh, Christopher Tolkien of the king family got it okay he's like like the guy in knives out the like the son who exactly. manages the empire <laughs> yeah that's kind exactly. of uncharitable i guess i'm sure Owen <laughs> no king, well the guy king in knives cool. out is i think based on christopher tolkien so oh really oh that's funny i, didn't I believe that. so i mean they have sense. almost the exact same affect and the same kind of um litigious um right um, right you know vibe so i don't know uh, yeah it's coming out on december 17th so it'll be the week that people are listening to this and so what we can timing. all check it out together it's such timing it's so funny i can't wait um okay cool well, any last things uh we want to talk about here that we didn't get to man uh no i was glad i rewatched this and i'm I was, it was very fun to come and talk about it. It's fun to watch something like this and then have people to go talk to about it instead of just watching it and <laughs> being alone with my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you want to watch any of these uh, Stephen King adaptations and be forced to be alone with your thoughts. I think that's no. a bad, no. <laughs> bad outcome. Uh, uh, Kirk, do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, I don't know. I do two other podcasts, a music podcast called Strong Songs and a video game podcast called Triple Click that are easy to find. But um but no, I was I was just I was very happy to be here. This was this is a delight and um I love you guys' show. And so I'm very I'm honored to be your first guest. Thank you. Oh, thank you uh, so much. Maybe when we uh so our plan well one this is a very tenuous plan. Mm-hmm. It's probably we, wise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When we get to 1990, we're going to watch or we're going to read the uncut version. And then we'll watch the other uh, oh. 
thing, fun. right? The other okay. mini series, and maybe you can come back for that. So that would be awesome. I would, I would be totally into that. I would love that. Well, that sounds like a plan. I'll see you in three years. Right, <laughs> right. I'll, I'll mark my my calendar. <laughs> I'll make a note in the spreadsheet to to reach out to Kirk when we get yeah, there. Right. Uh, okay, cool. All right. Well, that's the end of the episode. Uh, Michael, you want to take us out with the catchphrase? <sighs> Until next time, folks. Remember, we're doing it for the world but we're also doing it for Steve.